your week has gone well. It's nice to be with you again. This is our show for Sunday evening on October 2nd, 2016. The year is rapidly approaching its conclusion. And for tonight's show, we are very honored and fortunate to have Dr. Bill Warner with us again uh, for lesson three in uh, Islam subject which has become very important for everybody to be well educated in and uh, our first lesson that remember that we had and I I really encourage you to go back and and listen to the archives as soon as you get a chance the first one was about Muhammad and uh, his life his experience that changed his life and uh, how he's had such an incredible impact on the world and continues to and after that the history since uh, the death of Muhammad up to now, and then tonight we're going to be talking to Dr. Warner about the code of laws called Sharia. So you know why it's, it's become so important is because there are mass movement going on now, uh, not only within the Middle East, in the Muslim countries there, but uh, in Western Europe and in America where mass numbers of people are coming from Islamic countries, Muslims coming in, uh, not through the legal immigration process, but under what's called the refugee programs that are supported by all the Western leaders, including U.S. government and Western Europe, and coming in by the thousands and hundreds of thousands into all these countries. And many of them are coming from places where they've been, uh, well, for example, in in Syria, they're not all from Syria, but many of the ones from Syria are coming from groups that were working to overthrow the Syrian government, and they are um, very comfortable with violence. And it's showing that they're using it as an invasion in Western Europe and starting to do the same thing in America now. In some countries, particularly in Scandinavia, but also in France and other places, There are these mass waves of rapes going on and carjackings and all kinds of violent crimes, many of them with the perpetrators screaming, uh, God is great, or uh, Allah Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And uh, most of Westerners don't even know what that means. I I would really uh, encourage people to watch the YouTube videos of Paul Joseph Watson, who has done a great job in explaining a lot of where these invaders are coming from, the people who are perpetrating the terrorism, that it's not, um, it's not just because they're from poor countries. This is actually taught in Islam, and they're, the invasion that they're carrying out is actually part of uh, religious devotion, according to these people. And it turns out to be according to what Muhammad actually taught and lived as well. And that's not something to either believe or disbelieve according to what persuasion you personally happen to have. We need to find out what what actually did happen during Muhammad's life, what he really did teach. Uh, In the beginning, when there was no such thing as Islam, what did he bring and where did it come from? And in the first lesson that we had from Dr. Warner, uh, we really went into that and what the experience that Muhammad had initially that really, you know, got started his life as a religious teacher and, uh, in his words, a prophet of Allah, the last of the Jewish prophets, as far as he's understood. 
And uh, where I'm coming from this whole thing, I, I want everybody to be fully educated. Uh, I'm not for or against uh, anybody. I'm in favor of all people. And as corny as and cliche as it may sound, my interest really is in world peace and harmony and everyone respecting each other as individuals. You know, I think that life on this planet is hard enough on the physical dimension without us all, you know, giving each other even more trouble fighting and killing each other. That doesn't seem like a good plan on the part of humanity. So instead of that, I'm in favor of freedom and living exactly as you want to, whatever you believe, whatever you think, whatever you want to say, as long as you're not, you know, inciting people to to destroy each other. If you just want to talk about what you believe and your, you know, what you think is right and wrong, etc., I think you should be totally free to speak. That's called freedom of speech. They used to have it in a country called America a long time ago. It's really true. At least it was the idea. And I think it's worth doing. And even your actions should be free. And you should be able to live exactly as you want as long as you respect and observe the rights of everybody else to do the same thing. And when this country called America was started, at least the idea was, in the founding documents, a lot of the Federalist Papers and the Declaration of Independence, and also in parts of the Constitution, it talks about that people have inherent rights to be free and to live as they want. It's not because of a document like the United Nations Charter or some nonsense like this that says that the organization is giving you rights. They, they don't have any right to give you rights. <laughs> they don't own you. No other system of laws or beliefs owns you. The only, <laughs> you know, this is similar to the reason that I don't push um, multi-level marketing, even though we, we do have this gold thing on our website where you can buy or, uh, buy or sell gold and, and it looks like it's a good thing for security and for changing some of your money if you can afford to do it into a solid form that can't be stolen by government, at least not easily. But I don't push it and I don't push any multi-level marketing because it, it's intrusive you know, and I think whatever belief system that you have, whether it's about a product that's fantastic and everybody should buy or about how you get to heaven or don't go to hell or, you know, the best way to run a business or, or whatever, you know, the best fashions to wear, you should be totally free to believe any of those things that you want, but not to impose them forcefully on other people. This is the same reason that I don't, support U.S. invasion of other countries. Even though this country started out with very high ideals, the ideals included not meddling in the affairs of other countries. This was talked about a lot in the beginning when the country was being officially formed. And there are a lot of imperfections, a lot of crimes that were done by the initial U.S. government, most notably the crimes done to and imposed on the Native American population was really terrible. And uh, the servitude of a lot of people, the enslavement of black people, the uh, indentured servitude on the ships of mostly white people, but the color of people doesn't matter. 
It's that this was illustrations and examples of people not being respected as, as sovereign free individuals, which is what everybody is. So these invasions of the United States government, you know, using the military as a weapon against sovereign countries like in Iraq, Libya, Vietnam, and other places around the world. I think there's something like 130 countries that the U.S. government has uh, gone into and set up military operations in at this point. And I don't support that. Because these other countries and cultures are free to do what they want, and if we want to help them, we should be an example to them of how we let all of our own people be free. Now, and I'm not in support of um, anarchy, even though a lot of the people that are in favor of it and promoting it, you know, are Jeff Berwick and others are great people that I deeply respect, and I understand the ideal. But with the current consciousness of people, if you removed government, all you'd have is the dominance of private gangs. And it might be true that, you know, some of the better off people who had money could afford their own private security and, you know, arrange things like that. But most of the people don't have any way to afford that. And they would be run over just like they have throughout history, not just by governments, but by private um marauders and gangs and thugs. And so I think this is the reason that it makes sense to have a, a limited government whose only legitimate job is to protect your individual freedoms, not to take care of you. Because if they are to take care of you, the only way they can do that is to control your life. And it's been accurately said many times that the place of total security where everything is provided is, already exists. It's called prison. And turning your country into that is not a brilliant plan. So, what about World War II? You know, it looks like the United States was, and others, allies of the U.S. were quite justified to go in and invade the Nazi operation and shut that down. And in a way, that's true. But the rise of these dictatorships, including what happened in the Third Reich, would not happen without the funding of global corporations and Western, Western support through companies like IBM and many others that, that got the Nazis started. And what really inspired them was the eugenics being promoted in the U.S. and the U.K. People like Margaret Sanger and the associations that wanted to... Uh, clean up the race by killing everybody who wasn't up to their standards. So, and that was connected with the origin of Planned Parenthood and all this other atrocity that still goes on today. So, if those globalist rulers that are behind most of the wars and dictatorships and things and, and supporting them in many ways that are not obvious, if they weren't doing what they're doing, then you know, there, there'd really be virtually no justification for any country invading any other country, no matter how idealistic they could make it sound. So just like the globalists were fomenting World War II, Vietnam threw the false flags there and tried to get it at war with Cuba, but it didn't work when John Kennedy was, in was president. I won't say in power because there were powers above him. But the same thing is being done with Islam right now. 
And I don't think it came originally from Islam. I think it comes from the same globalist cartel that is tr really working towards total global domination and ultimately destruction of all life on this planet. And they just figured Islam was a perfect weapon because these people are willing to kill for God, which is great. They don't have to actually have any intelligent thought about what they're doing. They just have to think that... Um, God hates everybody who's not a Muslim, and that gives them free license to kill almost everybody in the world, and they're just perfect to destabilize societies. And the chaos is the groundwork that the globalist rulers want to bring in total uh, world tyranny. That's basically the idea for this phase, anyway. So, my original question, you know, when I started to realize that, is what are... What are these people doing? What are these Islamic terrorists doing? Where is it coming from? Are they crazy? And is this radical Islam that's different from regular Islam? And, you know, I have Muslim friends that are great people that I look up to um, very strongly and, have, you know, are examples of so many great qualities. So that made no sense that these are Muslim people in America that are friends of mine and that treat me extremely well. And then there are these people who are saying, for Allah, they're going and uh, destroying old ruins, killing, you know, thousands of people. They they love to throw homosexuals off roofs. That's one of their big things. Uh, they treat women worse than their animals. And what it, what's Islam really? So that's why I was looking for somebody like uh, Dr. Warner. But actually, before I talked to him, and I'd heard him on Alex's show, Alex Jones's show, so I knew his background credentials and his the incredible work that he's done organizing and uh, deciphering all three of the major Muslim scriptures so that anybody who wanted to, Muslim or non-Muslim, could understand what they really said in complete detail with documentation and reference back to the original scriptures. That's a, a, just an awesome gift to humanity to make these important scriptures accessible to everybody with full backup documentation so you know that he's not putting his own twist on any of it at all. It's all, if it's anybody's twist, it's that of Muhammad and Allah, and that's it. No scholars, no nothing. It's just straight from Allah. So I thought that was wonderful because the originals without uh, organization are quite difficult to fully comprehend. But what I was going to say is before I got Dr. Warner on the show and he offered to come on and ultimately do a series of lessons and a course for us in Islam so that we would understand it without preconception of what it really is, I had asked several prominent Muslims to come on. None of them would, and I didn't understand it at the time. Now I do, because According to the rules of Islam, if they said anything that, that reflects badly on the religion, then um, they would be subject to severe punishment. And in Muslim terminology, severe punishment's pretty severe, as I'm sure you are beginning to realize. So, um, anyway, I wanted to know what's going on with the Muslim terrorists, with the why is it so different than the apparently peaceful Islam that is in most of America and Western Europe, at least up until recently? And uh, why is the, are these invasions being protected by the global power structure? 
it's amazing the coordination between all the Western European rulers and the American power structure and saying, you know, now that it's politically incorrect and unacceptable to criticize this uh, so-called immigration, which is not legal immigration at all. It's, it's bypassing the normal system in waves and waves of these incoming uh, people from the Muslim countries, whom Obama says, kind of laughing at his political opposition, that these are widows and orphans, and only the foolish people would have any kind of uh, objection to the mass migration. It's just humanitarian. But he's not telling the truth. These are mostly military-age men, and a very significant percentage of them are in favor of violence against Western culture and against, in fact, any non-believers who are also called kafirs. That's a very derogatory term. That's exactly what anybody who's not Muslim is called in Islam as a kafir. So if you're not a Muslim listening to me, then you're a kafir. And according to Islam, as we learned in the original lessons, and according to, Muslim, to uh, Muhammad, then you need to be killed if you're not going to convert. This, you know, brings up some pretty important issues, and uh, some of them, as I mentioned, are covered in articles and videos by Paul Joseph Watson, because uh, he's clarifying that Islam is not a religion of peace. There are peaceful aspects of it that were taught, as we learned in the first lecture, when Muhammad was in Mecca, and he was not advocating murder. He, was, he got to where he told everybody else their religion was wrong if it wasn't Islam. And uh, previously cooperative, tolerant Arabic society uh, got into a lot of problems because he was telling everybody who wouldn't join him and become a Muslim that they would all go to hell and they were all terrible and uh, they didn't appreciate that. That's why he eventually got thrown out of Mecca and went to Medina. But later on, when he went, did go to Medina and, and was teaching there, uh, eventually he just started telling everyone that whoever didn't convert to Islam had to either be enslaved for regular slavery or sex slavery was also fine, or they could be exiled and their property stolen, or they could be killed. Those were the options. So to me, that was, um, you know, it's not what we hear publicly. What we hear publicly is more the religion of peace idea. And it turns out that that only applies to a few of the original teachings that came from Muhammad when he was still in Mecca, even before the contentious period there. But it definitely did not go together with the later uh, parts of the teaching, which take precedence. Um, and Dr. Warner has explained this in great detail. It's a if I remember the word right, it's a, a concept called abrogation, where if two, two teachings contradict each other, the later one takes precedence. And the later ones came out of the violent period when Muhammad uh, advocated mass murder. Uh, I'm sorry how that sounds, but that's what it really was, and still is. Because the idea in Islam that Dr. Warner has been explaining is that Muhammad's life is the perfect life, and everyone has to follow that. Or maybe the women have to follow, you know, the life that his wives led. 
but certainly the men have to follow, they have to be as close to exactly like Muhammad as they possibly can. And Muhammad set up mass murder of anybody who wouldn't convert, except for the ones that became slaves. I guess they were fortunate. But the ones that couldn't become slaves or sex slaves, which was common practice and is fine, um, they had to be killed. And there's one famous scene that he told us about that I keep coming back to in one of the villages that was invaded uh, from Medina uh, with Muhammad and a bunch of his soldiers whose job was to kill people that wouldn't convert to Islam. It was a Jewish village, and, and two of the three other existing Jewish uh, villages had already been chased out of the country and all their possessions stolen other than what they could carry on their way out. But this third one uh, was not given that option. Uh, the women and children were all enslaved. A lot of the women t were turned into sex slaves or given as wives to some of the uh, Muslim fighters or to Muhammad. And the, uh, the men had to be killed. They didn't get to become slaves. And so uh, 800 of them uh, and that is the number we're told. They were all beheaded on one day, and Muhammad and uh, one of his wives, I think it was Aisha, who was like, I think 12 at the time, uh, spent the whole day like out on a picnic, but watching the beheading of 800 Jews. So this is the reality of the original teaching of Islam, and that is the teaching of Islam. It's not like a living document that, that the teaching changes over time or is subject to reform or anything like that. This is supposed to be the eternally correct teaching. And if you want more detail on that, go back and listen to the archives of Dr. Warner's uh, earlier lessons with us on Lost Arts Radio. They're easy to find on lostartsradio.com. And uh, now we'll go into lesson three which is Sharia, a really interesting subject where the details of how uh, Muslims have to live and what has to be done uh, to kafirs, which is the rest of everybody who's not a Muslim, uh, this is all given in detail. So let's go talk to Dr. Warner, and then I have a few other th important things, if we have time, that I want to go over with you when we're done. Hey everybody, this is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. We're broadcasting worldwide with our show. Um, next installment of our, our ongoing lessons in what is really going on with Islam and what it is and what it teaches so that you guys and I will all be educated and not just going off, you know, unbased impressions of Islam because it's such an important topic now that um, Islam is on the move all over Western Europe and now in the U.S. as well. And since it's undoubtedly having a stronger and stronger impact on societies in all those countries, it's better for us if we really understand what is involved in that. And that's why I was really pleased that Dr. Warner was willing to give us a series of ongoing classes so that we'd, we'd know what's happening, and if we discuss it, we know what we're talking about. Um, so tonight, after last time's uh, lesson or discussion in history of Islam since Muhammad, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Sharia law, which is the, basically, if I understand it right, it's the code of conduct that really gives the detail of how to follow the um, ideal example of life that Muhammad lived and gave, and which is the duty of all Muslims to follow um, as well as they possibly can. 
And we need to know, you know, what that really means. And, and of course, it's what they ultimately expect of non-Muslims that are intended to convert and fix their lives by becoming Muslims as well, which means all the rest of us. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. Welcome, Dr. Warner, and thank you for spending the time with us. I appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to have an audience. <clears throat> uh, I spent eight years as a professor, and uh, if you're a professor, you need a student. Yeah, so I, I, I view fun. this as just a funny uh, lecture series. Yeah, perfect. So, so we'll make uh, believe we're just in an informal classroom, you know, sitting around the living room talking, and all of the listeners are there with us, just hanging around, and chairs are on the floor, and we'll just see where it goes, and, and I'm sure that it'll be incredibly educational, and it'll go by very fast. So where I was thinking of starting is... Um, you know, Sharia is, if, if I understand it correctly, it's a bunch of elements of a whole body of actual law. And it's not the law of a country. It's the law of a belief system, which is based on the understanding that Muhammad is the prophet, the, the latest in a series of prophets, but the most, kind of the most important prophet because of being the last one. And he's the prophet of God, whose name is Allah. And since Allah as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, told Muhammad that, look, you've got to let everybody else know to follow your example in all aspects of life. And so, I'm going to give you the details in case anybody needs clarification of how to live every part of your life, and that's really what Sharia has the instructions for. Is that accurate? It is. What Muslims will tell you is not quite the complete story. They will tell you that Sharia is nothing more than their religious law, like a Catholic canon law or Jewish halakha. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but with that, we have the first deception, because you see there's an overwhelming difference between Sharia and halakha, Jewish law, or Catholic canon law. Catholic canon law and Jewish law have nothing to say about the non-Jew and the non-Catholic. Okay. Sharia includes everybody. Right. Yeah, that's okay, a so massive that's, difference. That, that's an important distinction. I mean, the audience here may all be kafir, that is, they may be non-Muslim, but you are included. You have a special place within the Sharia. Okay. So, Sharia is a civilizational law. It covers not only every aspect of civilization, like how to eat, have sex, uh, how to discipline your children or whatever else, mm -hmm. but it's for everybody. There's a place for everyone in it. So, you as a listener need to know that you are in tonight's lecture whether you like it or not, and there's little you can do about it. Okay. And, and actually, that gets to be more of a real-life experience when, I mean, this is kind of diverging, and I'm sorry a little bit, but I think it's relevant that since right now populational uh, ratios of Muslims and non-Muslims in different countries are changing quickly, uh, especially in... America and Western Europe, if I understand that correctly. And Sharia law, when there becomes a, a certain percentage of the inhabitants being Muslim, in other words, committed to the system, um, there's more and more chance that that's going to start being incorporated into the actual law that's enforced in a country. Is that right? We need to understand something. Is Sharia law is already being implemented in the United States today as we speak. So this is not some future event. Let me give you an example. The history that is taught to 7th graders here in Tennessee is taught in a book 
that is fully Sharia compliant and it extols the virtues of Islam. You would think to read what it says about Islam, that Islam created the world's first constitution, it was the first to give women their rights, mm -hmm. it's the most brilliant civilization in the history of man, and all of this comes about because the textbook companies in America have submitted to the Sharia. And part of the Sharia is, is that only Muslims are allowed to speak on the subject of Islam. Non-Muslims are not allowed to speak. So what we have now are history books being used in the seventh grade in Tennessee in which they are fully Sharia compliant. They've been vetted by an imam. And whether I like them or not, and I have written extensively on this subject and testified, it doesn't make any difference because the textbook companies are going to produce the textbooks. And you will find that one of the biggest problems with Sharia is not Sharia, but the failure to resist it. And the school boards and whatnot here in Tennessee are like, well, we don't want to be called racist, so we're not going to cause a ruckus about this. Right, and right, right. So yeah. we're already submitting to the Sharia here in Tennessee. Oh, and did I mention these are national textbook publishing companies? So your state is involved as well. Wow. No, I, I, I just intuitively would guess that almost no one, you know, in the general population in America has any idea that that's going on. Unless they're really involved with their local school board, maybe. Well, this is true. And we find that it the teachers are not unique in this fact. The ministers, the rabbis, they also don't want to know about Islam. No one wants to know about Islam for a simple reason. As a friend of mine said, Bill, if people believe what you say, it's not that you're right. It's that they have to do something. He says, this is not like some vote as to what the best flavor of ice cream at Ben and Jerry's is. He said, this, when you understand what's going on, is a, is a, a life decision for the very civilization you live in. Right. And he says, let's get this straight. Most people do well to get through the day. And when you start saying you need to step up and in spite of your fear, defend your civilization, they're like, mm, I got a football game tonight. Uh, yeah, exactly. People so, don't want to deal with it. So, so there's there's some really deep sense of laziness and avoidance that has come into the culture in America and probably other places too, where it, you know, the thing about television and football games and stuff like that is that you can participate and just kind of zone out and become uh, a, an observer that doesn't really have to do anything. Well, when you hear the the Iranian lady she's probably Persian, tell her story, it doesn't produce a sense of relaxation and ease. No, this, this is the, the guest we just had, Inez uh, Cyrus. And uh, she, just using her name in public is, to me, a sign of incredible courage. I, I searched for probably, I mean, several months to a year to find anyone from within Islam who would come on the show and explain the things that we're talking about, and she's the first one. I have met her, and she is a, well, briefly speaking, she's just a hero. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that's the I mean, th th this is the, this is the real deal. Yeah. yeah. And I, now that you mentioned her name again, I suddenly realized I was on a show with her. I didn't realize that. Okay. She, she, is, she is a remarkable woman. Yeah, she knew who you were and, and was hoping that you'd help, you know, let more people know what she's doing. So We will do that. Yeah, 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 she'll be happy to hear that. So I guess the, this thing about this laziness and hypnotic trance that I think has somehow, and I'm, I know it's not by accident, but it, it's permeated much of the American psyche at this point. I mean, that's just my observation, that the only way 
to do anything about any of these issues, not just um, whether or not we want to be under Sharia law, is is figure out, and I know this isn't really the discussion, but we do have to figure out how to get people to not be hypnotized anymore. Well, I do this all the time. One of the things that I like to put up to people is, is how serious this is. And that it's, what we have is a history here. And let's touch on how Sharia creates history in a way that people are never thinking about. Okay. When the British invaded India, they finally left India, and that today no one in India calls themselves an Englishman. Okay? Right, right. right. Same is true of Pakistan. Yep. Now then, but when Islam invades, and the invasion can come with the sword or without it, when Islam invades and the Sharia is put into place, two things happen which are absolutely unique in history, and no one talks about these things. The first is, is that the society becomes 100% Islamic. All right? And the other is, the Islamic is permanent. Okay, but like in India, isn't it kind of half Hindu and half Islam with a few other things on the edges too? Yes, but notice something. The Islam continues to expand and the English influence continues to contract. Okay. That's the difference. So, <clears throat> I, I say this because Turkey used to be, Catholic, used to be um, Greek Orthodox. Okay. It's now 99.7% Muslim. So we're approaching what I call the law of saturation. That is, the day will come when there will not be a single non-Muslim within Turkey as a citizen. And how long has that taken in Turkey? It has taken, let's see, 1,500 roughly, just to make the math easy, uh, 600 years, six centuries. Okay. And now that we come to another aspect of Islam, we're Americans, you and I, and we want something done and jolly quick and I want it now. We measure time with a watch. Islam and the Sharia measure time with a calendar right. and by generations and by millennia. Mm -hmm. And so, th but what brings this collapse of the native civilization around is the Sharia, not jihad. Let me distinguish. The Sharia, the jihad puts the Sharia in place. Let's take Turkey for an example. Although we could also use Syria, Iraq, uh, Iran, we were just mentioning, but let's just let's just go with Turkey because it works the same every time. Okay. Jihad put Sharia in place. That is, the top of the government became Islamic. Now you still need citizens. Genghis Khan learned this when he, for a while, killed everyone in the city when he conquered it, and his advisors pointed out that there was no one left to pay taxes. Yeah, exactly. Or do so any. You need a, you need an ongoing affair. Right. So. It's, the Sharia is put into place. Now, what's important about the Sharia is, is that it does not rule the Muslim, but it rules everybody. And there's a special place for the non-Muslim inside of a Sharia society, and that special place is called a dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. Now, there's only one kind of citizen in a Sharia state, and that kind of citizen is a Muslim. Mm -hmm. No one else has a citizenship. They are subjects. They're not citizens. Okay. As a result, a dhimmi cannot be the boss of a non-Muslim, of a Muslim. So therefore, promotion in the society is limited to the non-Muslim being at the bottom rung of power. The non-Muslim is not allowed to be armed. He can carry a knife, but not a sword. The non-Muslim, and this is important, is by Sharia to be humiliated. 
not just now <clears throat> slaves are, be, are to be treated well they sharia says the slave is to be treated well but the demi the non-muslim is to be humiliated when i think about living in a society in which you can be humiliated think about living in a society where your testimony in court is valueless so if your daughter is raped even if you have evidence you cannot have the man arrested because you cannot testify in court nor can your daughter testify in court about the rape because she is a kafir a non-muslim right Right, right. So think about what happens here to a citizen of such a state. If, if the little Muslim boys show rocks, throw rocks at your wife, you can't do anything about it. And they call her names, you can't do anything about it. So century after century goes by. You're poor, you're oppressed, your status is low. Now, there are exceptions to this, by the way. There will be certain demis who are very useful and very to the powerful Muslim, and so they're usefully employed but they're still subjects. Mm -hmm. That is, we have cases in the Abbasid dynasty in Baghdad in which there were Christians who were top-ranked physicians who dealt with the uh, caliph at, uh -huh. for dispensing medicine. Mm -hmm. But is it not ever thus that with every oppressor, they always select a few out of the oppressed to be elites because you need your own elites who are under your thumb to control the masses? Right. Right. So what happens is the Sharia says that over a while, every single person will become a Muslim. They simply will give up on pushing back. And what happens is, is that as a Christian or a Hindu or whatever else you are, when you're living as a demi inside of a Muslim state, you become more Islamicized. Pretty soon the Christian beats his wife just like the Muslim does. Pretty soon the Christian has a foul temper just like the Muslim does. And by the way, having a temper is part of being a Muslim. Because Muhammad frequently lost his temper. Okay, okay. Okay, and, so, and that's the example that you're supposed to follow, in other words. Yes, since, since Muhammad had a... This is something to notice, by the way. If you and I, Richard, get into an argument, and I start screaming and yelling at you, I lose the fight according to our rules, right? Mm -hmm. Because I have lost my temper. I've blown my cool, as we used to say. Right. But as a Muslim, if you become angry, that is simply a debating technique. Okay, okay. Because Muhammad would become angry. Right, right. And, and I we guess have that, one hadith that's a, in which that's Muhammad supposed became to be so a, a reflection of Allah becoming angry if we're really bad and disobedient, right? Well, you know, it's funny, but as a kafir, I make Allah angry. Just by, is, by existing, you mean? Just by existing. Okay. Stop and think about what I just told you. Can you imagine... God, creator of all the universe, mm -hmm. and I'm just a speck, would become angry because of what I believed and didn't believe? Yeah, it's an interesting psychological um, situation that he's got. But anyway, the point I'm making here is that the Demi, let's take the Christian in Turkey, becomes a Muslim in everything but the name, he becomes a Muslim in many of his attributes. Mm -hmm. He also becomes, he, he is deferential to the Muslim. One of the more depressing things to do is to talk to a Christian who's come from the old religions in the Middle East, that is, say they are Syriac Christian, okay? Mm -hmm. They defer to Muslims in a way that reminds me of a cringing dog. That is, this is after generations of being a demi in Islam, they defer and will make excuses for the Muslim, and, and even on the most unhuman treatment. Right. Okay, so, but, but, but in, 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 you're talking about Turkey, and when Turkey started out, it wasn't Muslim, it was so, a Christian. 
It was Christian, right. And so, and you know, from the time of what, about 600 and something A.D., mm-hmm. um, it was Christian. And so, in the beginning, when it was moving towards the transition into Islam, the people were not being um, subjugated like that, right? Because the Muslims were a small minority. So, how did, that, how did that progress and change? Well, you've, you've put your finger right on it. The brilliance of Islam is it is a transformation process. For instance, we find this in the Quran itself. The Quran starts out one way and ends up another. It's, the Quran starts out, if you put everything in the right time order, as the religion of peace, perhaps, but it ends up in the final half of the Quran, the Medinan Quran, as to being the politics of jihad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, is Islam the religion of peace? Yes, it is. But is, it, is Islam the politics of jihad? Well, yes, it is. Well, Bill, which one is it? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is what it needs as it needs it. So, therefore, when it enters, like in America right now, the Muslims are comparatively weak. And so, therefore, they're more deferential. They love to come to the family of Abraham gatherings and tell the Jew and the Christian, oh, we're all family of Abraham. We're all, uh, you know, we're all basically the same. We all worship the same God. Mm-hmm. Later on, as time goes on, they no longer go to those meetings because they no longer need to persuade anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. But right now, the most effective door into American society is the church door and the university door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, so, the un- universities are becoming quite helpful in the transition process, right? Yeah, but all in the wrong way. <laughs> r- right, right. Um, the universities know, I mean, let me give you an example of, of what happened here at Vanderbilt University because it illustrates the Sharia. Yeah. There was a talk here in which a woman who was a retired FBI terrorist analyst gave a talk, and this was put on by the Muslim Brotherhood, primarily for the Muslim Student Association at Vanderbilt. Okay. And she came in to ask to say what a wonderful thing Islam was, and, and the trouble with Islam was the media. Well, mm-hmm. when she got through talking, another man stood up. And said, hi, my name is such and such, as you and I have something in common. You served with the Bureau for this many years. I'm retired and served with the Bureau for 34 years. So immediately, he's now talking to her on a level playing field, okay? Mm -hmm. Don't pull your FBI rank on me. He says, where did you learn about Islam? Well, she had to confess that she learned about it from a series of lectures given basically by the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So he went ahead and asked her, he says, have you studied the Sirah? No. Have you studied the Hadith? No. Have you studied the Quran? No. But now she's getting a little irritated because she's being exposed. Mm-hmm. The important okay. part of the story comes next. The leader of the group, who is a converted uh, Christian Republican, said to the MSA people, with Muslim Student Association people, we are winning. The evangelical Christians now accept us as a fellow religion. We have, better bir- we have bigger birth rates, we have bigger families, and we have immigration. We are going to take over the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, this is set at a, at a event sponsored by Vanderbilt University. Right. Now, do you think Vanderbilt University has a professor who would stand up and debate this issue? Oh, no, 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 because to debate against Islam if you're in a, in a university professorship is the same thing as belonging to the Ku Klux Klan. You'll be out of a job quicker than you can imagine. Right, right, exactly. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he proclaimed that the church door, basically, we're being... Brought into America by the Christians. And these Christians, by the way, it's important to know, have no idea about the story I'm telling you about Islam in Turkey. So, but the Sharia explains why 
over time, the country becomes completely Islamic. Now then, the country can become corrupt and collapse, but now then, it is now a pure Arab, it is a pure Muslim society, and so it may have a different form of government, it may change its name, it may do this or that, but it is now, the, the civilization now is now permanently Islamic. Okay. So the Sharia creates a saturation effect where everybody's a Muslim, and it creates a permanent effect where no one will ever, the society will not change on its own from being Muslim. Okay, so so there's two questions that come up to my mind from all that. One is, um, before we get into the main one that I wanted to look at, what's what's the difference? What what creates the two speeds, you might say, of transition or directions of transition between Turkey, which became, I guess, almost 100% Muslim at this point, mm-hmm. and India, which has a huge population of Hindus that are not converted yet? What's going on with that? Well, I think you've used a, an interesting word, yet, because the Muslim percentage is growing all the time. And let's take a country, most people are not aware of the fact that Pakistan used to be part of Hindustan. That is, before Islam, what we now call Pakistan, was a Hindu civilization, okay. a rather advanced one. Just like Afghanistan was a very advanced Buddhist society. Okay, I actually didn't know that. So that's Oh, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, Gandharva was the name of the country, and it was formed by uh, the remnants of Alexander the Great's army. Uh-huh. They set up housekeeping there. They married the locals. Okay. They converted to Buddhism and became absolute pacifist. There had been no war in Gandharva for a few centuries until the Muslims came along, and the f- most fierce soldiers in the world, the soldiers of uh, Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. pacifist when the Muslims got there. Okay. But anyway, let's go back to Pakistan. In Pakistan, it became com- almost absolutely, it's almost absolutely completely hin- uh, Hindu, I'll say in a moment, Muslim now. What happened to all the Hindus? Well, two things happened. They converted, they died, or they left. Okay, okay. Okay. And you're saying that's basically what's slowly happening in India as well? Yes. Islam becomes stronger every year. The Hindus become more and more accommodated to, will move to America or do something else. Okay. Okay, because I, I mean, I've been in India a couple of times, and the, the Hindu people that I met were very much socially and culturally involved almost every day in aspects of their religious culture, and, and it's interesting to think of them leaving that. It's hard to imagine, really. Well, we have to imagine some process accounts for the increasing percentage of Hindus being Muslim. Right, right. And, and by the way, it's interesting the contrast between Hindus are polytheist. Polytheists, by almost by definition, are very tolerant people. Mm-hmm. And Muslims are, I think we can say, the least tolerant people you'll find. Now, the same was true in, in India, not India, but in um, Arabia, when Muhammad came along. He was a member of a community in Mecca where there were, there were many, many, many religions, and there was no religious argument or in disputation in anything at all until he came along. So if you're talking about nationality, which is not exactly race, but it's kind of close to that idea, the nationality that it all came from that started it was a very polytheistic, tolerant uh, cultural group of people that Mohammed came into, right? Which yes. Was, it was the Arabs at that time. Yes, they were polytheist, and they were very tolerant. Okay, okay. You so, can see what happens in a small step, 
when Muhammad left Mecca, he went to Medina, which was half Arab and half Jewish. Right. Five years later, there were no Jews left, nor were there any Kafirs left. So the, the city of Medina took in the Muslim migrants, and ten years later was no longer existed as its original civilization was. It was completely taken over by Islam. Yeah, yeah. There's a lesson there. Yeah, I guess a, a warlike approach uh, has that effect on a tolerant host population. It wipes them out. Well, they keep accommodating. Like here in America, we keep accommodating the Sharia. That is, if Muslims want to have a room for prayer, well, goodness gracious, they need a room for prayer. We need to accommodate them on that. Yeah. If they need a special history book, we need to accommodate them on that. Well, and, and this is, interestingly enough, being... Uh, supported and directed by a very concerted effort among all the Western leaders right now. In all oh, yes. All over Western Europe and the U.S. Yes. And they're the ones that are directing the whole approach. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, okay, so I, th- I think with that as an understanding, maybe we can look at some of the elements of what Sharia actually says, you know, okay. in different departments of life, because it's trying to tell you the best way to, or the required way, really, to ah. live every aspect of your life. This is true. Right. Now, let's, let's start with the reason there has to be a Sharia. Okay. The Quran is the complete perfect word of the only God, and it is perfect in every letter of it. Right. But it, the peculiarity about the Quran is, is you can't be a Muslim based on the Quran because there's not enough information in the Quran to practice Islam. Yeah, or, or, live, or live most of your life, right? You don't know exactly. exactly how to do it. But there are 91 verses which say that every Muslim is to imitate Muhammad. Well, where do we find Muhammad? We find Muhammad in the Hadith, his traditions, a massive body of work, and we have his biography, the Sirah. Okay. So now then, we know what Muhammad did. We know what, what Allah says, and so the purpose of the Sharia, it is a process. It's not a book of laws as such. Hmm. There are laws within the Sharia, but it is a process of taking everything in your life, what to eat for breakfast, and asking the question, how would we eat a breakfast like Muhammad would eat his breakfast? How would we be a father like Muhammad was a father? How would we be a scholar like Muhammad was a scholar? No matter what it is, you are to do everything exactly like Muhammad did it. And so the Sharia is the process of examining what Muhammad did and said and coming up with a solution. Let's take an easy one. There are rules about divorce scattered all the way through the Sirah and the Hadith and throughout the Quran. Okay. So if you want to know how do I deal with a divorce, what has happened is a Sharia scholar goes through and collects everything mentioned about divorce in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. So then you take all of this information about divorce and you codify it, and then you start reaching decisions based on, the co- based on all the data you've gathered. So if you're going to marry, what happens to the children? Does the mother get them or the father get them? Well, let's see what Muhammad said. Let's see what the, Allah says. So what you're doing here by collecting all the things about Sharia, about marriage into one category, you're beginning the process of being able to make Sharia judgments. And so okay. what you do is, it establishes there is no morality inside of Islam. There's not a good and bad, good and evil. Instead, there is obeying, following Muhammad or not following Muhammad. So well, it that's is a kind process of, that's, of imitation. That's kind of what good and evil basically is, right? Good is what advances Islam. Evil is what retards Islam. Okay, okay. But it isn't based on 
you notice that that that's not a, there's not a sense of good and bad there. It's a sense of complying. It's compliance okay. is what okay. it's about. Or submission, you might say, right? So, yeah, they, an even better word, Richard. An okay. even better word. Okay. And, and so, so here we have really this. it's making it practical to follow yes. all the information in the three scriptures because it's condensed in Sharia. Yes, it becomes practical. Now notice here that it can be fluid and adaptive. So let's say computers come along, or telephones, or printing uh-huh. presses. Okay. Well, what is the Sharia response to that? Now notice something else here. Since it is a man interpretation, we know that people are going to differ. Let's take our Constitution. Does everybody agree whether you should be able to carry a gun in a nightclub or not? Well, it turns out there are constitutional arguments to be made, and some say yes, and some say no. Okay. Same Constitution, but different opinions about it. So within the Sharia, we may have different gradations of the interpretation. There are four main schools of uh, Sharia. I think it's four, maybe six. I'm not, I should know that, but I don't. Here's what's interesting as a Muslim. You get to choose which school you want to be judged on your particular question. I uh, think that's an interesting adaptation. Uh, I'm, not By the way, the most interesting I'm not really understanding what you're saying there. Four, four million, there are four main four, schools of Sharia. You're talking about physical schools? Uh, philosophies of Sharia. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. There are four different philosophies of Sharia. Four main scholars who pull these works together. All right. If you are going to have your case tried in a Sharia court, you get to choose which one you want. So it's kind of like picking a judge. I think that's sort of interesting. Okay, it is, yeah. And by the way, the most interesting Sharia, and a fatwa is given, which means simply, this is the, it's kosher. My judgment is this. This is permitted or this is forbidden. Okay, so there are four primary philosophical interpretations of Sharia. Mm -hmm. I bet you, you know, from what you've said, I, I bet they don't vary an awful lot. No, they don't. There are small differences, and, and for, here's what the important point is. When it comes to what to do with the kafir, they all agree. Okay. When it comes to jihad, they all agree. So, okay. But the most interesting case I've heard brought before a Sharia court was a woman went to a Sharia court, and she says, my husband beats me every day. Now, it is Allah's law that he can beat me, but I want the court to tell my husband, beat me only once a week. I don't know how the case was resolved, but I thought, my goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, well, she was asking for quite a bit, actually, right? Yeah, she was. Give me I'm six sure. days off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, notice hmm. the tragedy here is Allah says he can beat me. I mean, just this, hmm, I happen to not be fond of wife beating. Yeah, I, I kind of get the impression that you're a little Islamophobic that way, but I'm trying to overlook. So, so um, every every aspect of life is is covered, and so one of the big attractions is that you don't have to wonder about what to do, right? Nope, it's all worked out for you. You know everything you need to do, and okay. you also know this that you're following Allah's laws. Right. And by the way, this I just said something important there because why should why should you and I be legislators and we get to come up and decide what to do about anything in society? Let's say uh, should marijuana be made legal? I just picked that one out of the air. Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. Well, why should Richard and Bill be able to do this? 
what do we know? No, no, we should see what Allah wants. So our first question should always be, what does Allah want and what does Muhammad want? Mm -hmm. And then we do it just like he did. Well, so and we that's one, here, one we reason here an entire system that of government. The Muslim Brotherhood calls the Quran their constitution. Okay, so from that point of view, Islamic society is far more moral and spiritually based than the, you know, infidel Western culture, where everybody it's, decides it's whatever argument. they want. Indeed, that's their argument. Why should we follow man's laws when you say that in America there's freedom of speech? We say that in Sharia there is no freedom of speech, and so there are people like Bill and Richard should not discuss Muhammad. They should listen to what Muslims say about Muhammad. They shouldn't do it in their business themselves. Exactly. So what happens is in, you have to understand that there is no freedom inside of the Sharia. Freedom is defined in Islam as the submission to the Sharia. Yes. Is, being a slave of Allah is freedom. Well, that would free you from any errors of doing what is, what is not in accordance with Sharia, right? This is quite correct. So, um, anyone listening to this, uh, if the next time you strike your wife, just say it is Allah's will. See how yeah, well that exactly. works down at the courthouse. Well, and, and, and it's proven that it is His will because it's in the book. That says, it's in the this, book. Yeah. I now, raise an interesting question here. Go Let's ahead. say that you're a Muslim policeman in America. Okay. It's a call, a domestic dispute, and you go to the door, and there's a woman who has the signs of being obviously beaten. Now then, whose justice is dispensed here? Does the Muslim arrest the husband? In Tennessee, he has to be arrested. So does the Muslim arrest the husband or not? The Muslim cop. Whose law does he apply? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. These are big questions. Right. Right. Um... Okay, before we get too much farther, I want to go back and, and ask a question based on what you've explained uh, about the origins of Islam, because it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was only like 1,400, 1,500 years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in 2014, I guess. Um, we're, we're talking about a system where at least for half the population, which is women roughly, um, it's not really very good. I mean, you get beat up and you you have to live in part of a, a mini harem. I mean, I understand that in modern society, men are only supposed to have up to four wives, but didn't Muhammad have like 10 or 11 himself? So that's another side. There's questions that come up constantly like, you know, for at some point, why can regular men only have four? That's not very fair. But what I'm asking about is in the beginning where there's this culture that has so much violence and murder and invasion and death and, you know, control. What is it that appealed so much to the otherwise peaceful, tolerant Arabic people that they wanted to just join this thing? Well, the way it works is, it's written clearly in history, is that the sword led the Quran out of Arabia. So it was, it was brought upon them by a violent conquest. And what happened was, is that the conquerors, the Muslims, just took over the top of government. They left the Christians and others in place to run the society for them. And at first, even the head people were still Christian. I'm, just, I'm going to discuss Syria and Iraq for the moment. We'll skip other cultures. And okay. so the bishops would actually collect the jizya, the tax money, and present it to the archbishop, and the archbishop would pay 
the money to the caliph. Okay. Now, what this did was this puts the structure of the church in servants in service to Islam. Now, as Muslims become more and more, and the generations go on, they start taking over all the process. So there is an adaptive process as Islam enters. It enters one way and leaves another. But in the end, the Sharia is put firmly in place. It always ends with 100% saturation. It's just that it takes a while to do it. It's a process, just like the Sharia is a process. And you start by taking over the top government levels, right, Mm -hmm. so that the rest follows. Exactly. Okay, is that what Muhammad did? I know he, he... he started out, as I understand it, in Medina, conquering neighboring villages. But eventually, when the scale got bigger, if they invaded another country like Syria or you know, something adjacent to Arabia at the time, did they really focus on changing the leadership as, as the main thrust of the program? Yes. I mean, the, it's, a, it's a very simple process. It's been done by others. It's just that others, when they've set, let's say when India was invaded by England, they set up locals to run the business. Now, they gave them bureaucratic training. They gave them a common language, English, to, com- to work with. Mm-hmm. But the British left the Hindu aspect of being a Hindu alone. Okay. okay. All right. They may have brought in Christian missionaries, but basically Hinduism stayed in its place. But with Islam, they immediately start taking over not just the political government, but they also take over dominating the religious government as well. Right, right, right. Islam is a civilization. It is not a religion. The only people who say that Islam is a religion are non-Muslims. In, in Tennessee, the Muslim Brotherhood always says it's a complete way of life. What I say is it, it, it is a complete civilization and has no need for anything that we have. Okay. The, the only thing that I think is confusing about that a little bit is that the reason it looks like a religion to me, in spite of all the political ramifications and actions, is that an important element in how you motivate people to do the required political actions is they get to go to paradise and avoid hell, which is pretty religious, it seems to me. Well, that's the reason the Muslims are doing it. Right. And so... If you said it's non-religious, you know, and you'd be down to motivating them with pay raises and things like that, and when they're risking, <laughs> risking death, it's not as good of a motive. Let, let, me, let me give you an, 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 a perfect example for this. As you know, I've made a name for myself counting, like counting up how much of this and how much of that. Right. I'm going to give you some counting here. Okay. There are many, many mentions of hell in the Quran, not just... And I think that there's rough, these figures are rough because they're not in front of me. There's roughly 130 mentions of hell in the Quran. Okay. In every mention of hell, you find out why the person is in hell. Right. And only 9% of these is the person in hell because he was a liar, he was a murderer, he was, he was an immoral person, he was what we would call evil. Okay. 91% of the cases of people in hell they're simply in hell because they did not agree with Muhammad. They denied that Muhammad was the prophet of Allah. Okay. okay. I maintain that that is a political hell because it's not based on any harm to other people. Oh, that's so interesting. So 9% of the mentions of hell, which are normally you think of very religious, are for immorality. 91% of the mentions of hell 
are for a political charge. You did not believe that Muhammad was the prophet of Allah. So therefore, you can be punished. Now, there's something very odd about this. There is no jihad in the Quran of Mecca, the early Mecca. But when you get to Medina, the mentions of hell drop enormously because now then, instead of hell coming after you die, in Medina, jihad brings hell to you in this life. But remember, my original point was to talk about the political nature of Islam. The political nature of Islam is such that it is the dominant force of Islam. Now, of course, everyone in Turkey wound up signing up with the program to avoid hell, but they were in hell before they did simply because they didn't believe that Muhammad was the prophet of Allah. I think that's fascinating. It is. And, and what seems kind of um, like a paradox to me in a way is that people born into this particular system seem to, I'm, I mean, especially the women, but to some degree the men too, because they don't, I assume they really don't have any freedom of, of thought or speech or belief or anything like that. In a way, they're the primary victims of the system and yet they're the ones that are enforcing it. Paradox, isn't it? The, yeah. first, the first victim of Islam is the Muslim. And, and still now. Or really. still is. Yeah, and, and especially the women. Islam, it's an entire way of life, and so when you grow up in it, you don't think a lot about it. Okay. So it, it, these are not... One of the... As a scientist, when I studied Islam, one of the things that leapt off the page at me, in the Quran it says that we're... Muslims are not to ask difficult questions. I remember that, yeah, okay. I mean, think about what I just told you. You are not to ask difficult questions. As a scientist, I'll tell you, the only questions worth asking are the difficult ones. Right. But in Islam, you're not to ask difficult questions. The intellectual content of Islam is not a feature of Islam. When you have your children sit down and memorize the Quran in an ancient Arabic that's no longer used, what intellectual training are you giving? You're not giving an intellectual training except in memorization of what are basically nonsense words. Right. And, and it, so, it's, it's also offering, I'm trying to think of, of, you know, incentives for people to not only support it, but join it. And I guess one of the things that, that appeals to part of the nature of, of human beings, maybe men more than women, although I'm not, sure that I'm right about that, it just seems like it, is that if you can express parts of yourself that normally would be forbidden or highly restricted, and not only are you allowed to do them freely, but you're rewarded religiously by going to paradise, then there's some kind of a, a strange attraction to that. You know, when you get to kill for God, for example. Oh, yes. Many people joined Islam after the 9-11 in America because, as Osama bin Laden said, people love a strong horse. They want a winner. Right, right. And so that's one of the reasons that people join Islam now is Islam is expanding and Christianity is contracting. Yeah. Yeah, it's like voting for the candidate you think is going to win. It's called the bandwagon effect. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so, you know, the, the elements that we talked about are the areas of life that Sharia covers so far we've talked about well just a little bit really about um, a couple of them but there's a lot more to go into and, and certainly big areas are um, women Women has to be one of the ones near the top 
But I want, I want to know what you think are some of the most important areas of life that Sharia covers. Well, I don't know of anything it doesn't cover. We can talk about women. Yeah. Uh, the uh, women have a special place in Islam, uh, primarily because they're set aside. There's a very f- one of the most famous verses in Quran is four thirty four, in which it is said that. Allah made men superior to women because men spend their wealth to support them. Exactly. Virtuous women are obedient. They guard their unseen parts, the vagina, the sexual organs. Yeah. And if you fear that a woman will uh, rebel, admonish them, then send them to a sec- separate bed and then beat them. Right. But you're supposed, to not, you're supposed to not beat them too hard, though, right? No, 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 no. You're not supposed to hit them in the face. Right, right. So, I mean... Here we have the, the verse from the Quran which states that a woman can be beaten. Well, that is, with just that one statement, how is it that the Quran is allowed to be sold and used in America and people smile and laugh at it, and yet it contains instructions on how to disobey our laws? Because in every state in the Union, it is, it is wife beating is illegal. I do not know of any place that allows wife beating. And yet the Quran says women can be beaten. And I come back to this question. Should a Muslim husband be arrested under our laws if he beats his wife? And so I say yes, but how, the Sharia how, says no. How is that? I mean, yeah, I see both, both sides of that. So how is that being answered in real life in America right now? Very easy. The same way all of Islam is treated. Gazes are averted. People just won't look. It's denied. Okay, so if somebody calls the police to a house where that's going on, what happens? I don't know of a specific case. I just know that in general, Islamic violations of our law are just overlooked. Because okay, because it would, be, it would be racist to c- criticize anything like that, right? Richard, can you explain something to me? Sure. I've seen Muslims from Chechnya who mm-hmm. have hair that's as blonde as cotton, eyes as blue as a lake, and skin much lighter than mine. Mm-hmm. Why am I a racist by criticizing political Islam in front of a Chechen who is more white, th- more Caucasian than I am? Where's the racism there? Well, I don't get it. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't quite understood that myself. I think maybe it's because to criticize somebody's belief is just so evil that you must be a racist even if there's no race involved. <laughs> <laughs> I think that racist has just become... I don't think it has a precise meaning anymore. When I was a child, I knew exactly what it meant. But now then, you do realize, of course, that you're, you're, I'm called a racist here. Yeah. Okay, just so long as we have that clear. So uh, You're that, fairly, fairly famous, and, and you're a convicted racist, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been to I a uni- I've been in a university, and I, I'll tell you, I, I'm a convicted racist also. Oh, good! Uh, so we have a lot in common. I, I actually, <laughs> I questioned a textbook, which is about as bad as Christ- questioning somebody's belief system, and I asked why... They were bringing up all this stuff about specific races when it was supposed to be about health. And I was turned in as a racist for asking that question. You're serious? Absolutely. And even though in the end, 
and I'm, I won't divert more than a second on this. I just think it's kind of relevant in the sense of, of showing what's going on with logic in our country right now. Um, I was interrogated for two hours by upper administration for questioning that textbook and therefore being a racist. And at the end of the interrogation, they admitted that, well, I didn't really have any racist thought in, in my objection to the textbook because of their being racist, but because I offended someone who complained anonymously, therefore I was guilty, and if I did it again, I'd be thrown out of the school. So you're not a, it wasn't a racist act, but if you do it again, we'll throw you out on racist charges. Yeah, and I was guilty because someone was offended, even though I didn't do it. <laughs> so this is where I think it's going. The, the, just in terms of the university now collapsing and falling in on itself, here in Tennessee at Vanderbilt University, a woman that I know who's a black conservative and Republican, and uh, she made some comment in class and preceded it by saying, this is not politically correct, but this is what I believe. Uh-huh. It was on the front page of the newspaper for three days. The president of the university said, I'd fire her, but she's tenured. And then get this, they set up a 1-800 number hotline for those students who had been traumatized by hearing an idea that was so offensive. Exactly right. Yeah, nobody should be subject to that kind of torture. So I, I remember when universities were places where critical thought was taught. Now they're just ideological centers. Yeah, that was before modern science. Now we know that, that critical <laughs> thought is actually racist, and so we're real, making a lot of progress. Pardon <laughs> ah, <laughs> while I shoot myself. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's allowed. But uh, um, So anyway, as far as the other areas you were starting to say about the special status of women under Sharia law. Right, and by the way, we need to understand that Islam claims to be the first civilization to provide and guarantee women's rights. I've heard that, yes. They proudly proclaim this. Yes. And uh, the rights of Muslim women come from Allah. Well, it's true that they have detailed the rights of women. I mean, there's no question about it. Well, they are. They've really detailed them. Uh, For instance, wife beating. A man will not be asked why he beat his wife. Right. None of you should flog his wife as he flogs a slave and then have sexual intercourse with her in the last part of the day. He goes on ahead to say that women are half the intelligence of men and that most of those in hell will be women. And the reason they're not going to be in hell is they were not grateful to their husbands. Oh, this brings up another question for some reason, just comes into my mind when you say that, and that's about what women have to wear. How specific is that specified? Well, what it specifies is how Muhammad's wives are to be, is what they're to wear. Okay. Now, it does, it does uh, impress upon all women the need for modesty, which, by the way, I don't have a problem with. Sure. But the thing that I find most abhorrent about the dress with women, I've always wondered what the temperature is inside of one of those burqas. Mm-hmm. Why, if you're living in Arabia, do you wear black? Yeah. Why would anybody in a hot climate want to put a mask over their face? So if you're not married to Mohammed, do you have to do that? No, you don't. But the argument is made, look, the brilliance of Islam is that it uses every single aspect of being a human being to advance its cause. And one of those things is fashion, how, what clothes are worn. Right. Islam dictates everything. It also dictates uh, clothing for men as well. Okay. How long your pants can be, where your cuff needs to be. Right. 
So Islam uses everything to advance its message. When I was in the Balkans, there was every, in Macedonia, every 10 miles there was a new Turkish mosque. Mm-hmm. The Turks are coming back to the Balkans. They're there to claim it. Okay. Once they own it, it's always theirs. The, uh, the Arabs are doing the same with Spain. Now they would pay a converted woman money on a monthly stipend if she would wear a hijab and general tribal uh, Muslim clothing. They paid her for that. Why? Because it made a political statement for her to be in public with a Muslim garb on. It's like waving the banner. Okay, and 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 who was was paying for that? Say what? Who was paying for that? The Turks would pay a converted woman money if she would wear the hijab. Okay. Okay. Because this is civilizational war. You get enough people walking down the uh, avenue with the hijab on, and it looks like, my goodness, the whole town's becoming Muslim. Okay, okay. But I think that that is a particular genius of Islam to use that as a weapon of war. Okay, so so what's the status of all that in America today, where a, a lot of the Muslim families I know, the women just wear Western clothing, so... Is, does that, is that mean that, is that allowed or are they breaking rules? That is allowed. But the time will come as Islam becomes stronger and stronger in place is that more and more of them will wear hijab. Is that, be, why? Because of pressure, peer pressure? Or, or peer what? pressure. Okay. Peer I, pressure, shaming. Okay, so it, it's a statement that you're following Muhammad, whereas the other is yes. you're kind of rebellious, right? Right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So um, at at the current, you know, status in America, where are we in terms of that progression towards complete um, what happened in Turkey, for example? Well, I, in, in numbers, percentage wise, we're not in trouble. We're I don't, I don't know I don't know what the current status is for Muslims in America, mm-hmm. but they are roughly two percent, I think, depends on where you are. But look, this is going to change. Right now, they're bringing in the, quote, Syrian refugees. Yes. Now, there are many refugees in Syria, and not all of them are Muslim. But less than one-half of one percent of all the refugees that come from Syria are Muslim, are, are less than one, half a percent are Christian. Right. Why is it we're seeing the Islamification of America by the fact that the clergy does not protest? Why is it? Do you know who brings these refugees in? These are church groups. So church groups will bring in Muslims in order to make a dollar and feel good about their own morality, but they will not bring in Christians. Well, aren't they also they, sign a contract, by the way, that they won't convert the Muslims. I, I, that's interesting. Are, aren't they, the uh, Christian groups that bring in Muslim refugees? So refugee is code for aliens that, that are not going through the legal process, I assume. Because you know, they, I'm not they sure. Do. Refugees are supposed to be fleeing something and, and need a safe place. Yeah, exactly. They're not supposed to be economic migrants. Right, and I think the government is actually paying the charitable groups yes. to, to help them settle, right? Yes, but part of the payment to get money is you sign a contract and you agree on the money, but part of the contract is, as a Christian, you will not try to convert these people. Okay, all right. Just so this, is part of a, this is part of a demification of the churches. Here they are, they're not standing up and saying, hey... Why don't we bring in Muslim? Why don't we bring in Christians? There's only been one nation in Europe. Slovakia said, we'll take all the refugees you want, but send them Christians. 
Well, that, of course, was a racist phenomenon to insist yeah, on Christians. Absolutely. I mean, that's cruel and unusual. Yeah, yeah. So in, in America, it's almost all people coming in are almost all within Islam. And then the people who, who help them once they get here are given money by the government to do that. And it bypasses the entire legal immigration system, regardless of what you think of its current status. It's just avoided completely in what's happening now, right? Well, I think we've reached the point where to say that we need to control our borders is, guess what, it's a racist statement. Yeah, exactly. That's self-evident, I guess. That's self-evident. <laughs> so so I, I think part of the conflict that, that you're describing is the conflict between a system that tells you everything about what you have to think, say, and do, and believe, versus what, you know, there are old myths about the original America was based on total individual freedom, as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Well, what the original concept of America was equal opportunity, but now then it has become its equal outcomes. Yeah, exactly right. Right. So you need redistribution of wealth and other things like that. Right. Um, yeah, and, and there, in fact, there are, there are government programs that we're learning about such, under Agenda 21, which is now Agenda 2030, such as the Strong Cities Initiative that wants to break up the, um, what do you say, that kind of the cultural makeup of different neighborhoods and make sure that they're all made fair. So that well, I think what they want to do is to make sure that every zip code has the exact same profile of whatever nature they imagine. Yeah. Is exactly. that we need to make sure that everybody has an equal outcome. Yeah. Well, I've lived in a commune and it produced that rule produces a different kind of thinking than you might first suspect. Yeah, I would imagine it has a whole different effect on the psychological motivation to actually do anything as well. I bust your chops. Yeah, yeah. They um, pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. Um, yeah, exactly right. It's an automatic psychological response. So, so what's happening in this country is as fast as possible, we're being helped along the road that kind of analogous to what happened in Turkey, but with a lot more organization and help. Well, they've gotten pretty good at it by now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that the... the media, the, the major media, has all become completely complicit, which since the media is the mouthpiece of the major corporations, that means the corporations are uh, cooperating with the governments to get this done. Exactly correct. It's interesting. The Human Resource Department has become one of the chief weapons that the federal government has, and it's administered by corporations. It's interesting how this is not working out in a very Marxist way at all. It is, and it, it, it makes you wonder how it's going to be used by the people actually orchestrating all this when it gets to the point that they want. I suspect that at that point, Islam is not going to be in charge. It's going to be one of the, um, one of the servants of the real power structure, which will take over. Well, there we disagree. I think that Islam will be in charge of everything. Do you? Okay. Yeah, they, they have much, they, I think they have a better control system. So the people who are bringing it in are bringing in something they won't be able to hold control over. Is exactly sort. correct. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. That could certainly be the case. 
Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Richard Sachs. I, we've just been off briefly here. We had uh, some interruptions to deal with and some electronic uh, challenges, you might say. But um, we're back here, and I think we were just at the point where Dr. Warner was talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, is one being the um, basically the rules, the details, and the process of the followers um, imitating the life of Muhammad in every detail. So, um, Dr. Warner, does that look like where we left off to you? If it wasn't, we'll start there anyway. Okay, sounds great. So, um, you know, one thing I wanted to do, um, we will cover, you know, the, all the things that we really wanted to get to today, but I wanted to recap just for people that may not have taken the time to go back and um, listen to the archives, which I hope they will do, but just so that the rest of today makes complete sense and nobody is having misconceptions about what we're talking about, my understanding, and you can tell me if I'm right, of, of the basic history that led up to this is that Muhammad, who was a really upstanding and good person in society, leading a, a uh, caravan business between um, Mecca and Syria, if I understand right, or that region, <clears throat> was um, he ran into an unexpected experience where a non-physical light being, uh, I mean, just uh, someone who appeared as, as a, a lit up person, but not physical, um, told him that he was the prophet of God, whose name was Allah, and that uh, he had work to do. And Muhammad was so upset with that that originally he was going to kill himself because he he was a very conventional person and, and wasn't involved in, you know, channeling or, or supernatural contact or anything like that. And so he was going to give up, and, and he went back and it was one of his relatives that convinced him that this was legitimate and he should really, you know, take the directions and do the best he could as a prophet. And I, I understand also that in that process, the being uh, that, uh, the luminous being that showed up to him and told him about this for his life did not identify himself at the time, and it was one of his relatives, like an uncle, that told him, oh, this must be the angel Gabriel. Now, does that all sound accurate as, as a beginning for this whole adventure? I think you've done your homework. Yes, it is the way it okay. works. When he was okay. first received his revelation, he thought he was crazy and thought that he, should, he would climb up further the mountain, jump off, and kill himself. But, right. So his first impulse was like, Oh my goodness, I'm crazy. Right. But the point is, this was not a crazy person. This was a solid individual who was a respected businessman. He was uh, respected in his community, which, which where he lived in Arabia was kind of an eclectic group of a bunch of different religious practices, all sharing mm -hmm. a, a common religious building that they called the Cube. And there were all kinds of different... Uh, religious statues and things in there, and everybody got along. There's a, there's a very charming story about how Muhammad settled an argument, and I want to tell this story because it contrasts later with his absolute intolerance, and that was before he became the prophet of Allah, they, they rebuilt the Kaaba, which was a cubicle okay. ceremonial building, and uh, there was always a black stone that was in the corner of it, 
And so there felt an argument among some of the Arabians as to who should put the black stone in place, because that was a sort of high ceremonial thing to do. And so they were having a big argument, and so someone says, look, here comes Muhammad, let's let him resolve it. Because he was known for his ability to put oil on the waters, as we would say, that is to resolve yeah. disagreements. And so uh, what he did was very clever. He took the black stone, which is about the size of a soccer ball, best I can tell, having never seen it. And he put it in the middle of a blanket, and there were four men arguing. He says, now each of you take the corner of the blanket, lift the blanket, and put the stone in place. So they all did, and everybody was happy. So this was, mm-hmm. I thought, a, a brilliant compromise. And so this is what he, yeah. uh, what he did before he became the prophet of Allah. But when he, after he became the prophet of Allah, in all arguments, you had to agree with him. And so this... Is right, and... and, and uh, and apparently that was not really his idea. This is the dictation he was getting from Gabriel on how to be a prophet. The thing of it is, is when you examine Muhammad's career as a prophet, one winds up remarking the same as Aisha, his favorite wife, because uh, mm-hmm. Muhammad developed a taste or hankering for his daughter-in-law who was married to his adopted son. And so there came a revelation that from Allah that... Uh, there were no such thing as adopted children, and so therefore the, it was not his son, and so therefore this wife of the now not adopted son was allowed for marriage. And as Aisha said, your Lord is quick to grant you your wishes. So when you, study, right. when you, lay, the, when you lay the Muhammad's career out in a timeline and you stretch the Quran beneath it, you discover that so many times the Quran answers Muhammad's ongoing problems. So these were not random voices, as it were. They were these were problem-solving voices in, after a while. Okay. Whatever Muhammad needed, when, Allah gave him. When, when Muhammad got Aisha, as you just were explaining, as his wife, uh, what other wives did he have at the time? Oh, my goodness. First off, let us establish that there is not an exact agreement as to how many wives he had, but somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen is usually uh, brought forth. And let's okay, see. Okay, so... And by the way, on his marriage, he has two distinct periods of marriage. The first period of marriage was he was monogamous when he married Khadija, who Aisha said okay. was always his favorite wife. Then after Khadija died, he then began uh, accumulating a harem. Okay. Now, was that a common practice in Arabia before uh, he became a prophet? You've asked a question which I've never heard before, but since there were no uh, objections from anywhere, I presume it was normal. Okay. My other question about it is that right now, if I understand the current rules of Islam, you're not supposed to have more than four wives um, to be a good Muslim now. But well, how did that come up? Because he, he had more than four. Well, because there is an exact verse in the Quran about this. Uh, the answer is, is that a Muslim can have one, two, three, or four wives and an unlimited number of concubines, to use a polite okay. word. Sex slaves is a term I prefer. Yeah. Uh, so you could have but four wives. But now then it becomes very easy in the Sharia process to divorce a wife. So, uh, now there is some good practical advice about accumulating more wives. And by the way, as a man who's been married for over 50 years, why you would want four wives is beyond me. 
I, I, I understand completely. <laughs> I'd be like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, to, to, to be fair, I, I don't think most women would want four husbands either. Well, anyway, uh, where was I going with that? I'm sorry, I got off on a sidebar of my own personal. <laughs> but anyway, well, uh, there, well, there were yeah, one, two, three, or four wives. But it went up further to say that Muhammad could have as many as he wants. Now, the practical advice about the Sharia, that's where I pick up where I, I lost myself. The practical advice okay. from the Sharia is, is you're not to have another wife if you can't support her well. So you're only okay. to pick up more wives as you can afford to. You're supposed to treat them all equally. But then the Quran, <clears throat> which is a book I'm not exactly fond of, but occasionally does dispatch wisdom, is that, mm-hmm. you know, don't bring on more women into the house if you can't take care of the ones you've got. So, okay. so that's, that's the deal. So we must accept the fact that it, certainly child marriage was not a, unacceptable because we know that that happened with Aisha and there was no big outcry. Yes, yes. Okay, but this is one of the rare cases where Sharia is not telling you to copy Muhammad in every detail, right? Because he had a lot more than four actual you know, I wives. never thought about that. I never thought about that, but you're precisely correct. Muhammad was uh, not like other men. He could have as many wives as he wanted. <clears throat> and we think that, it, well, the number's unclear, but it's around a dozen wives. And by the okay. way, do you know this? Okay. When I wrote my book uh, on the Hadith, one of the things that became a chapter, which I had not anticipated at all, I, I did a rough outline, I included an entire chapter on jealousy. Because it turns out that <clears throat> even though Muhammad was the perfect man, his harem had arguments and jealousy and fights and divisions within it. So uh, mm-hmm. we see that uh, so one advice from a man uh, who was a Muslim about marriage is he said you want either one wife or four wives. If you have one wife, life can be harmonious. If you have two, they bicker with each other all the time. If you have three, two gang up on one. But if you have four, they'll split into two couple pairs, which will divide amongst each other, but agree with each their own twin, if you will. So right. I forgot where I read that advice. Wow, interesting. Okay. And um, the, the idea of having multiple wives... And I'm sure, I'm assuming, and we haven't talked about this, that women can't have more than one husband, right? Of course not. So, <laughs> um, so, th- so this means that you're setting up a society which is going to be mostly unmarried men. If it goes, <clears throat> you're exactly correct. Now, you have to understand that part of the model that we have here for the harem, which is laid forth in the Sirah, is that more wives are taken through jihad. The okay. Okay. I mean, Muhammad himself gives this example. So the tribe itself may be low on women within side of itself due to multiple marriages, but you can always go outside and get them. And by the way, the wife. Interesting. Can, now, according okay. to the Sharia, the wife can be a uh, any can be a anything, but the children must be raised as Muslim. This is one of the terms. Does the wife the have to? Does the wife have to convert to Islam too? Absolutely not. She can be, <clears throat> Muhammad had uh, a Jew who never converted within his harem. And uh, okay. so, no, you do not have to convert. But the children, well, this is one of the things that's important about Islam is, in our culture, in our civilization, our emphasis is on the individual. But in Islam, the Sharia emphasis is on the family, which produces a slightly different society. 
Okay. All right. So, so how how is it different? Well, there's just a big, there's two collective emphases that you find in Islam. One is the family, and the other is the ummah. The ummah is the large uh, Muslim community. And what, in terms of it, many times judgments are given on not what is the basis for the individual, but what is the basis for the entire group. And it's uh, that's another subtle difference that we have between Islam and our society. Our society is probably one of the most highly individualistic that's ever existed. Yeah, yeah, or at least it was set up that way. It's kind of, we're losing it now, but that's true. Um, and, and as far as the idea of a shortage of wives, when we talked before about the fact that you can invade, well, Mohammed set the example of invading neighboring villages and, and areas of the country to... For, uh, that in the invasion happened because they were non-Muslims, and so it was okay to take the wives and children and to kill the men. And as long as you kill the men, then the problem of too many unmarried Muslim men gets balanced out, right? It's true. Now, we have to understand that in the majority, most Muslim families consist of a man and a woman. And there's, there's a model for this. Remember, Muhammad was in a monogamous relationship with Khadija for some years. So the, okay. practical side, the practical side of society is most Muslims have one wife. But we are seeing okay. it already that we are in, the, in our country and in Europe and as well, there is a blind eye turned to the bringing in of the additional cousin or something is which what they're called. And if a social mm-hmm. worker finds out that in Britain that a woman is an added wife, there's nothing done about it. What I'm saying is, okay. is what we're seeing in our country is, is that we defer to Sharia. If, if the man has right. multiple wives, then we don't bust their chops. We issue uh, welfare checks for each of the wife. Okay, so is that happening currently in America as well? I don't know about it. I'm, I'm going to say that it, I don't have any factual information on this, so I can't speak to it. But I know that it is happening in Canada and Europe. And why wouldn't it okay. happen here? Yeah, it usually is there first and then it comes here. So uh, what we have here is a deference. Well, that's the religion. It's funny. Right. Islam, is, as a religion, gets all kinds of deference paid to it, which I don't notice for Jews or Hindus or Buddhists. You know, there's a lot of Buddhists. Step back and look at something here, Richard. There are many, many Buddhists who have moved to America. Do you know of any Buddhist political lobby? Have you ever heard of any push for Buddhists to have their story told in the history books? You don't hear any push to see that Buddhists are in any way treated anything other than just people. It is Islam that demands the special treatment. And the reason for this is is that the Sharia has to dominate. That is, the Islamic way has to be the way that everything is done. If there's food served to prisoners, halal halal has to be offered. Let me take this halal food thing to talk about something we need to be sure to, to deal with, which is what to do with the demands of the Sharia. Now, it turns out, everybody thinks, well, my goodness gracious, we have to, for instance, if we don't let them pray in the afternoon to work, they'll go to hell. And we don't want to be responsible, even though we're running a chicken plant, for them going to hell. I'm just taking this as an example. Right. We take food as an example also. If you're a Muslim uh, prisoner and they're not serving halal food, which is basically kosher for Muslims, you can eat mm-hmm. the food. And you can, there are, if, you, if you're not allowed to pray at work, 
there are rules in the Sharia for makeup prayers. So what happens is, okay. if the kafir forbids the Muslim from doing his practice, the sin falls upon the kafir. The Muslim is now sin-free. A frequent example, okay. an ethical example, is if a Muslim is in a lifeboat, and all that's on board the lifeboat is uh, pork products, he can eat the pork products because there is an, there's an, there's an obligation to life is, better, is bigger than the obligation to eat a halal food. So when we tell okay. a Muslim that they can't do something, it doesn't destroy their religion. They get an automatic free pass on it. So the sin right. falls on the kafir, not the Muslim. So we, if you're running a business, you do not have to do everything they want you to do. You can just say, no, you can't do that. And then they don't have to do it. I see. Okay. But that's not something that's likely to be publicized because it would it would stop this whole trend to changing right. procedures <laughs> over things. When the Muslim demands so, uh, prayer prayer at work, he doesn't say if you don't he doesn't end by saying if you don't have don't let me do this, I don't have to do it. No, the demand is left as it is. Generally speaking, in the politics of this matter, if a Muslim makes a demand at work to say wear the hijab or have afternoon prayer, it isn't an individual yeah. request that's made. This has already been worked out with members of the Muslim Brotherhood, that is, that this will be done. Well, Muslims rarely okay. act alone. They usually act after they've already checked back with the community, and this is the strength of the Ummah. So that when a man goes into work and says, I have to have afternoon prayer, then he has the, the strength of an entire community behind him and the encouragement of an entire community. And so therefore, he may yeah. appear to be an individual at work, but he has the strength of the Ummah behind him. Okay, so the organization tends to be dominant over disorganized non-members of the Muslim community. That's true, but it's also true in the uh, Kafir community because at the Chamber of Commerce, you better believe in Nashville, Tennessee, they will never have a seminar on how to resist the Sharia. The Chamber of Commerce is too, oh, I don't know. They're just not up to that kind of assertion about business. The, I right. find that the Chamber of Commerce has become very, well, that's, that's another whole issue. <laughs> but let's just say yeah. the, Chamber of, the Muslims may be organized to try to get prayer at work, but the members of business are not going to have a public meeting about what they can do to resist prayer. Because there's this whole business. If well, you so resist they're, the they're actually you working on the same, they're working on the same side as allies is what you're saying. Yes. And, and isn't it also true that... Um, even if you're uh, Norwegian or Canadian or, or Antarctican or anything like that, you can still be a Muslim. You can convert to Islam no matter what your background is. Is that right? There is no, one of the oddest things that happens is that people such as myself and you too, since you're broadcasting people like me, you'll be called a racist, yeah. which is the most bizarre concept. And by the way, I noticed somewhere on the web as I was getting up and stirring through the news, is that the White House wants a different racial category for Middle Easterners. Like what? Why is everything oh, right. become race? Because Islam itself proudly says it has nothing to do with race, except on one issue. Here's what they tell for conversion process to blacks. In America, blacks are told that Islam is the religion of the black man, and Christianity is the religion of the white man. So that's the only time they bring race in is to talk to black Americans with regards to converting. And they probably do the same. Okay. 
But but the white people are invited to become Muslims as well, right? Oh, goodness gracious, yes. Oh, my word, yes. I mean, if I announced okay. that I was going to submit to Islam, there would be a huge uh, uh, outpouring of, of joy in the Muslim community because, well, you know who I am. <laughs> well, yeah, you finally came to your senses. I mean, there's still right. time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope I don't come to my... <laughs> <laughs> to imagine me as a Muslim okay. is uh, bizarre. Yeah, so... Because I, but, I mean, it, here's, here's, here's the reason I could never be a Muslim. You and I are talking right now about Islam, but there's an entire process yeah. of freedom of thought that you and I share as a, as a whole, and there is no freedom of ideas within Islam. For instance, if I did become a Muslim and then a week later decided, oh, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore, I'm an apostate, and as an apostate, I can be killed. Yeah. Yeah, just for your own good. I mean, it would be, yeah, I understand. <laughs> you know, in the South, there's a saying, there's a saying, well, when someone gets shot who's not exactly of the best moral character, well, he needed killing. So I guess Islam has yeah. a special category for that. He needed killing. Right, right, right. Yeah, so uh, America is, uh, you know, there are old stories that America was once founded on the idea of individual freedom. And I yes. think that actually was the idea in the beginning. You can tell in the founding documents. It's just, it's changed a lot from that point. And at this point, if you did become a Muslim, then you would have a lot of advantages and special protections because if I was arguing with you about anything, I would obviously be a racist. Obviously. As soon as I become a Muslim, I'm no longer a racist. Yeah, yeah, it's impossible, exactly. Okay, now the other thing I wanted to ask you about Sharia is that you're talking about the Chamber of Commerce for, as an example of an American organization that is moving to cooperate with and protect Sharia moving in. What about in education? What's happening on that level in America? Uh, one of the things, let me start off by saying is, is that the process that Muhammad invented was how to use Sharia, the demands of Islam, for civilizational war. Islam is the most brilliant war machine ever invented because it went beyond the idea of a military war, a kinetic war. It, see, it sees war as an entire societal war so that everything within the society can be used to advance Islam. So therefore, when the meatpacking plant, or when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police now allows female officers to wear a hijab, that is a victory for Islam, because that's one more thing that has become Islamicized. And when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police does this, and there are other police departments that have done it, this was just, I just talked to a Canadian yesterday, there's one more okay. corner of Sharia established, and there will be further demands as well. The demands mm -hmm. never cease. There's always one more thing that needs to be done. Just one more thing. And people who are like Chamber of Commerce types think that, well, once we accommodate this, they'll be happy. It's like, okay, just give them their headscarves to work. Everything's going to be fine. Well, it mm -hmm. turns out we need, now we need a permanent prayer room. Well, we have a room for all religions. No, no, no. Our room must be ours. We can't share it with others. So the demands right. in the workplace have no known limit because everything about everything has to be in the end you can even demand that the toilets be changed because they're facing in the wrong direction. 
So there is right. no aspect of, of life that does not have an Islamic aspect to it. And at some point, that Islamic aspect will be pressured by Muslims. But the reason is, is that we buy into the lie that Islam is a religion. But when you study it, you understand that, yes, it is a religion, but that is not the major part of it. The major part of it is political. Its success comes through politics. And so we see that organizations like universities and schools are completely unprepared for the assault. Here in Tennessee, people are rather friendly. And so when the Muslims insist that they want textbooks to read history their way, there's an immediate tendency on the part of the education committee to say, well, whatever you want, not to ask the question, why are we teaching history the way Islam wants it? This is still a sovereign nation, although that concept is rapidly disappearing, it seems to me. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what's happening is, is that the textbook companies, which were, have, have uh, Islamic investment in them, the, the, over, over 25 years ago, there was a meeting by the Muslim Brotherhood in California to dominate the textbook business in America because by dominating the textbooks, you dominate education. And once you dominate education, you'll have pretty soon, you wait three generations, and all the entire United States has now had an Islamic education with regards to history. And that Islamic education with regards to history is that Islam is the best civilization that's ever existed. It treats other religions well. It gives women their rights. Uh, it is... As the Quran says, Muslims are the best of people. And so the textbook reflect this. And so they not only teach history, but they also teach a sociology and an ethic. And they teach a superiority of Islam as a religion. Because it says it's the most tolerant. It doesn't say Islam is the best religion. It just says Islam does, was the first to give women their rights. Islam was the, wrote the first political constitution. Islam, 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 Islam. And uh, there's subtle slurs and slams towards Christianity. And one of them being, at least in the latest textbooks, uh, Christianity is, if you just count the pages, uh, there's very few pages devoted to Christianity. The excuse of the textbook companies is, is well, everybody knows about Christianity. Well, mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. not so true. Yeah, so the, yeah. So the textbooks are now becoming Sharia compliant. And we use the term Sharia compliant, we need to know that some of the larger textbook companies actually have, uh, they're not on staff, but they have an uh, imam consultant. So when I say that these books mm-hmm. are, text, are Sharia compliant, I mean the textbooks that are coming out are Sharia compliant. They tell the story of Islam okay. beautifully and have subtle digs and criticisms at the other religions. Wow, and the, interesting. And the Kafirs just sat around feeling good for themselves, like, oh, see, we're tolerant. There's an entire category of things now which are brought in under the name of tolerance, and toleration of the Sharia is called tolerance, although I say that tolerating an inhuman doctrine is just inhuman itself. Yeah, but then you'd be a racist, of course, so we have to remember Well, hey, have have you tried racism, Richard? It's fun. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm, that, by the way, I, I won't response to insults. I never, I never deny an insult. I always embrace it and say it's great. Right, and, right. But it does, it does strange things to people when you do that. If if you say, well, of course I'm a racist. It's a great thing. If you're not tried it, then all of a sudden it's like, ah, yeah, ah. <laughs> they don't know what to say. 
No, you're outside the script. There needs to stop, you know, have an intermission and reprogram the conversation here. Um, okay, so a couple of questions that come up from what you said. One is, you know, I'm apparently not, maybe this is semantics and maybe it's more important, but, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at this religious versus political idea and, and which part of a belief system is which. And it looks to me, you know, I mean, I don't have the, the background of this thing that goes back very far. I've just recently really started studying it in the last few months. But it seems to me that anything, in fact, going back to something that, that you said, um, in what, I've read your books, okay? So, so in one of them it says, uh, religious Islam is what Muslims do to go to paradise and avoid hell. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the apparently political things that a good Muslim would do, if I understand it right, results in going to paradise and avoiding hell. So if that's true, then a lot of the political things from a certain point of view are actually religious or else the motivation to do them would not be there. You have, what happened was, soon after 9-11... I was sitting and thinking of how to advance the cause of education about Islam. And I realized that a religion has a certain burden that comes with it. And one of which is a religion doesn't have to make sense. Okay. Uh, okay. That is, you can, you can say whimsical things under the name of a religion that if they were somewhere else would be like, no, I don't think that works like that. So religion has a lot of tolerance built into it for ideas. The other thing is, uh-huh. is that we have in our country the uh, freedom of religion business, actually. And so people don't want to mess with religion and to talk about it. Now, I will say that there's a special category for Christianity, which is it can be criticized, but none of the other religions are supposed to be criticized. So I needed to come up with an idea that would talk about the part of Islam that impacts me, Bill. Now, the part of Mm -hmm. Islam that impacts Ahmed, I don't really care about. If a Muslim wants to get up before sunrise and pray, it's like, fine, why do I care one way or the other? But if I'm running a business and a Muslim now tells me that he has to take afternoon off for prayer, like, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is my business. I'm hiring you to come here. So that is a, that is a political impact. So let me, let me give an example here of prayer, of the difference between politics and, and religion. And let me also say that I will freely admit there's a certain artificiality here. When I'm, when I'm dealing with people who I'm trying to educate, I use the term political Islam and religion Islam. When I'm dealing with a professional, if I'm talking to Andrew Boston, I just say Islam. I don't uh-huh. need to just sort it out. So I'm trying, I see the, the use of political Islam as a didactic step, a way to educate, to say, wait a minute, this is more than a religion, it's a complete civilization. Because it has some very political okay. concepts in it. But I will freely admit right. that the idea of political Islam has a certain artificiality to it. But I wanted to have yeah. deal with a subject. We can still argue about politics in America. And so that's the reason I decided mm-hmm. to use, the, I coined the term political Islam, which, by the way, is becoming more and more commonly used, I see. But that's, it, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree, it's, it's, there's an artificiality there. But at the same time, Islam does impact you, Richard, and it impacts me, Bill. And we're not Muslims, mm-hmm. so we need to be able to talk about that. And so I thought the political idea was the most... You can still be contentious about uh, politics. 
Okay, okay. So in, in a way, just like many of the other concepts that we've talked about, both sides are true. It's political because of the impact that it has on the political system of, of everyday life. It's religious in the sense that the political part would not be happening unless the people doing it were motivated by going to paradise and avoiding hell. Exactly. So, anyway, like I say, uh, there is, it has a political impact. And I, par, I, okay. call the part that makes, I call the part that makes demands on me political. Because I sure am yeah. not part of the religion, Richard. Let me assure you of that. I, <laughs> no, no I, I understand. Um, and the other thing I think, you know, is good to clarify is that this whole thing about racism, people in America have realized that actual racism is totally ridiculous and it, it's just about criminal because looking at somebody as good or bad because of their so-called race is just completely ridiculous. Everybody's an individual. But since, you know, people have become so aware that that's, you know, not an intelligent approach to take to look at somebody because of their race, they therefore will do almost anything to avoid being seen as racist, even if it makes no sense at all and, and is used for example, in, in the sense of, of discussing Islam, because Islam is totally not a race. It's so absolutely not it, a race. I mean, I, 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 know Muslims, I know Muslims who have blonder hair than me and bluer eyes than mine and lighter colored skin. Does that mean right. you're not a Muslim? No. Yeah, and Muhammad, as you said, was very light-skinned as well. I think the reason they call people like myself as a racist is it is the worst non-curse word you can use on the radio. But it's supposed to be the worst crime of all. So, which is odd to me because it it just is. I mean, there are far more people killed, more black men are killed by other black men than by white men. But the media only gets into it if it's a white person killing a black person. So somehow or another, yeah, a black man's life isn't valuable unless it's killed in a racist killing. But it seems to me they're dead both ways. But anyway, I think the term racist yeah. is used because it's, it is considered to be the worst moral crime. It's worse than, racism is worse than murder. Right, right, right. So when we're talking about uh, jihad, I mean, sorry, Sharia as, as outlining the details of how to follow Mohammed in every detail of life. Um, two questions come up about that. First of all, Mohammed is male. So how do, how, how do you understand how women are supposed to follow Sharia if it's about following Mohammed's life? Well, I guess you're supposed to follow like his wives do. And I think I can give you an illustration for this. The face covering, the niqab, was, is in the Quran only for Mohammed's wives. But some people use that as saying, well, we need to be as good as Muhammad's wives if we're women. So they do work away in that. But, of course, you do have Islam, in my opinion, is the, is the most male of all religions. Better to use the Taoist term yang rather than male. Mm-hmm. But it is right. And by the way, this accounts for some of the popularity of Islam amongst um, men in America, which is, in my opinion... As a person outside of the fold, Christianity has become somewhat feminine in its aspects. That is, it emphasizes compassion, caring, loving, kindness. It doesn't emphasize strength. 
And so for the, one of the attractions of Islam for the average, for the male, is that you can be really robustly male and be a Muslim. And let me go further and say, it also is an attraction for some women. There are women who are attracted to very masculine men. And so this is one of the attractions mm-hmm. that Muslim males have for women. Right. So. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, uh, you know, there are some women that are actually attracted to the the violent jihadists, which which brings up the um, the question: Is jihad the violent imposition of Sharia? Is that a way to understand it, or or is there a more complete understanding? Well, there's a more complete understanding. What your statement is partial. That is, what you said is true, but it doesn't take the whole truth. Uh, the worst part about jihad is not jihad of the sword, which is killing people. Uh, the worst part about jihad is the civilizational aspect of it, how it changes the civilization from being intellectually curious to being intellectually still just... Islam does not lay a great deal of emphasis on intelligence. You can see this in the way that the doctrine is studied by their own children. They don't study the Quran, they memorize the Quran. And the Quran is done in a language which is maybe not even understandable to them. So this is not exactly good mental training, which is just years of education. So, but the jihad consists of everything becoming, look, I, we were just talking about textbooks. Making the textbook Sharia compliant is an act of jihad, a very clear act of jihad. And it's a more dangerous act of jihad than to say someone burst into the room right now while I'm recording and kills me. I mean, I'm just one more dead Tennessean at that stage of the game. But the right. textbooks being changed means that forever, the, starting in the seventh grade now, Tennessean children are being taught that the greatest civilization in the world is Islam. Well, this is disastrous because it's a lie. But yet our children will believe it. So the part of jihad that's the most dangerous is the Islamification of a society, not a few citizens being killed in an attack. Now, I do not want to minimize the suffering of those who say we're in San Bernardino and killed or on 9-11. Right. I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm saying that as an impact to the nation, the number of people killed in jihad is small in comparison with the damage done by the Islamification of America. Okay, now outside of America, there have been quite a few people physically killed by jihad, right? I think you mentioned in one of your books 270 million. Is that this, right? is what I, this is what I call the tears of jihad. When I, Richard, when I started studying Islam, remember I came to it as a complete outsider. I'm to use mm-hmm. a fancy term, autodidact. That is, I'm self-taught. Well, self-taught people have a couple of strengths and a couple of weaknesses. One of the weaknesses is they frequently mispronounce the words they've read and never heard, which is certainly true of me. But the other is, yeah. is that the person from the outside brings an entirely new view of this. And as, as a scientist who studied it, I just discovered there were a lot of things about Islam that no one had ever paid any attention to. So I, I come at this from a slightly different viewpoint. As a matter of fact, a very different viewpoint, but it's been, I think, very refreshing. And so, now what further, what was your question here? Well, that's a pretty substantial number, if that's accurate, 270 million. And I was wondering, where where does most of that number? Yeah. Let me me talk about that number. One of the things as a scientist that I discovered was, no one had ever asked a lot of questions. And one of the questions that had never been asked, which is, how many people have died in jihad? I mean, if you're going to study jihad as a military study, let's say you're teaching it at West Point, which West Point does not study the history of jihad, 
You, I mean, the question comes, well, how many people died in the Second World War? If we go into any school and ask the question of the senior class, how many Jews died under Hitler, do you have an answer? Most people have a number in their mind, even if it's not correct, but they know that number exists. So I found mm-hmm. that no one had ever asked the question, how many had died? And so I thought, well, that's a peculiar thing. And then I began to look around and realize that the figures were not easy to obtain. So my figure of 270 million is a first cut, a first guess. I do not claim it to be totally accurate, but I do say this. If you disagree with me that 10 million Buddhists have been killed under jihad, tell me the number that has been killed. Don't tell me that the number is zero. That is, don't just say, Bill, your number's wrong. Give me a better number. Richard, if we had real education going in our schools, people like me wouldn't be doing this work. There'd be doctoral dissertations written on how many were killed in the slave trade. Doctoral dissertations written on how many were... There's all kinds of subjects that are not being studied in our academies now because it would irritate Muslims. And this is one of the rules that we've adopted into our society is, well, you see there's classes of people you can't disturb or irritate, and one of those is now a Muslim. You cannot offend him. So as a result, you do not discover any... I challenge any listener of this program to show me one school that teaches in a rational fashion. And by that, I mean looking at data, how many people have died under jihad. But it is not, mm-hmm. is it not a useful scientific question to ask? How many have died? So my number of 270 million is a best guess. But if someone thinks it's wrong, give me a better number. Don't just say, oh, there weren't that many. Sure. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask you is about, you know, we talked about some of these rules on, on prayer and other things that are being brought into uh, American companies and things like that. What about on the non-work side where, uh, you know, we're looking at, at cultural aspects. I noticed in in some of the writings it was talking about Sharia prohibiting uh, many aspects of, of involvement with music and instruments and yes. art and yes. painting and yes. uh, drawing pictures and all these different things. Can you explain a little bit about how that works? Well... There is probably no more an individualistic act than being an artist, but uh, Muhammad couldn't stand uh, drawn figures. He said that uh, there's this episode in his life where there were no more, uh, Gabriel didn't visit him. And finally, when Gabriel did visit, he says, why haven't you been around? And basically it said there was some pictures in in the room where he was and that Allah hates images of live animals and people. And on Judgment Day, every artist who sketches pictures <clears throat> will be told, make these animals move, make these people walk and talk, and when they cannot, they'll go to hell because they have somehow or another imitated Allah. So, and there's also the same, same thing with music, is that music is not supposed to be played, other than I think a tambourine can be played at weddings. So there's many acts of, of uh, individual creativity which cannot be done... And the one that is the most appalling to me is that simply if you have an idea which disagrees with Islam, I mean, I was listening to an interview you did with Annie Cyrus, a truly remarkable woman and a real hero. You know, heroes have become action figures in our media now, but real heroes are people like Annie Cyrus. And she speaks about the fact that that there is no freedom. And so I say that freedom is a human quality 
But freedom is not a Sharia quality because there's lots of aspects of freedom you're not allowed, in particular that of being an apostate. I mean, there was an imam, I think a Yemeni imam, who stated, or maybe it was Alawaki, anyway, it doesn't matter, who stated, if it were not for the apostasy law in the Sharia, Islam would cease to exist. And he was proud of this fact. And I'm like, wait a minute. Sure. You're proud of the fact that you're running, you're part of an organization that will kill people if you disagree with them and leave? And you're saying that is the great strength of it? My goodness gracious. I mean, I find that appalling. But it is part of the lack of freedom uh, that we have. And by the way, let me give you an illustration of how prayer can be used in a very political fashion and without going to an interfaith gathering. Increasingly in both Canada, Europe, and now America, Muslims will commandeer a street to do Friday prayers. Well, this commandeering of the street, Richard, if you and I and Doug go out on the street and stop the traffic, all right, that's commandeering mm-hmm. the street. We, you and I will very quickly meet a man with blue lights on his car who does not have a sense of humor about the traffic being blocked. He will tell us we right. are unblocked. I mean, we're going to get a fine, and if we don't, we can be cuffed and taken to jail. But... Yeah. If we commandeer the street to pray, the cops will stand there and protect us from being interfered with traffic or people being quiet and yelling at us. So the prayer is religious. Commandeering the street is an act of politics. It's a political action and it is an assertion of political power. It's an assertion of the Sharia. So we see that the Sharia can be implemented in public demonstrations, for instance, just which I consider commandeering the street for prayer to be. But back to your point, no, there's a lot of individual freedom as artists that, uh, I mean, if you think about it, what great sculpture have you ever seen that was Islamic? What great, it is said that when Khomeini was being interviewed, who was the Ayatollah of uh, Iran, one time he was asked about uh, Beethoven, and he didn't even know who Beethoven was, didn't even know who the Mm -hmm. man was. So there is no great Islamic music because Muhammad did not like music. And uh, so this is an example of following the Sunnah of Muhammad. Right, right. And by the way, there's never been a bestseller in English that's been translated into Arabic. Yeah, I was just just asking you um, if creative writing is looked down on like the other art forms. Well, any form of creativity has to fit within the bounds of Islam. I mean, which is another way of saying, so far as I'm concerned, uh, here's here's a, a clue as to what you just said. There is a verse in the Quran which says you're not to ask difficult questions. And there's actually that explicitly stated in a Sharia text. So if okay. you're not supposed to ask difficult questions, how are you going to be creative? I mean, part of the creativity is to ask original questions. So there is... Right. It, look, the, Islam is translated sometimes as a, the Sharia is the path. Well, it's a path, but it's got barbed wire fence along the edge of it. You can't get off the path. That's the problem. And yeah. every, everything has to fit in the box of the year 632 A.D. So that's not very creative. And part of the great advances of American and European rule of logic and thought was stepping back and taking a look at what was considered unthinkable. That is, the Catholic Church's interpretation of the Scripture. And after that, we mm-hmm. made great, enormous bounds in thought and so it's a limitation let's measure this in the nobel prize i'm a scientist by training and Mm -hmm. the nobel prize is given to the elites 
in science. Now, there is some political quality to some of these awardings, but let's not get up into the weeds on that. In general, they recommend great creative minds. There has never been a Nobel Prize given to a Muslim scientist who was working in a Muslim country. There's been a, less than a handful who've received Nobel Prizes sharing the work they did with a Kafir in a Kafir nation. Now, how much money does Saudi Arabia have? Massive amounts of, of uh, money. And yet there has never been, out of all that, there's never been any scientific research that was really worth publishing. So here we see, why is this? Is it that Muslims are innately low IQ? Absolutely not. I reject the idea. But a thought process, they have to squeeze everything into a box that's labeled the year 632 AD, means there's creative thinking they can't do. They're supposed to follow the path of Muhammad. They're not to strike off the path of Muhammad and create new, new ideas and new paths. So creativity is measured by Nobel Prizes is simply not to be found. And uh, right. so there's, and, but there's all kinds of indications on the lack of creativity in Islam. And these are proudly done. I mean, Muslims are proud of the fact that, of who they are and what they do. But they simply are not into, they're, a good Muslim's idea is not to do anything new. A good Muslim's idea, remember, is to simply follow in the path of Muhammad. So there's no reason to create a response because what you're supposed to do is like a database lookup. What do I do about whatever? Should I play soccer? And should I watch, how long should my pants be if I play soccer? Well, these are not things you try to figure out on your own. You try and look up in the scripture and see, basically, if Muhammad played soccer, well, how long would his pants be? And this, by the so, way, is a practical problem. Right. So, so you know, in, in reality, I have friends in this country that are Muslim that are, are living, you know, a westernized lifestyle there. Some of them, by the way, are, are brilliant scientists. They were actually doing work in scientific labs, chemistry, and other things like that. Are they, are they essentially just going against what the Quran says to do? They're not going against it, but at the same time, they're not... When we, here's one of the things that I try to do. I try not to discuss individual Muslims because you say they're Muslim, but what does that term mean? Does that mean they actually do all the things that Muslims are supposed to do, or they just call themselves a Muslim and barely practice? So when a no, I, I just I just mean they're born into the Muslim religion and they came from Muslim countries. Then they may not be that much of a practitioner of the thought process of Islam. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and, and I call what you're, you, the field we're getting into here, Muslimology. That is, it is a study of Muslims. It's a sociological process. See, the beauty about what I do is I discuss Islam. Islam is ideas written on paper. It's words on a page. They don't change. Yeah. We can, they have an objective nature. If I refer to you to a hadith from Bukhari, you can go look it up. If you tell me about this Muslim scientist you know, then I can't look him up, as it were. He's an individual right, person. Exactly. I, I'm just thinking it's a major challenge if you, you know, don't if if you are a creative person and you are a brilliant person and and you're working in science for a scientific company doing, you know, whatever kind of exploration you're doing, trying to and we don't have to answer this question, but trying to um, blend that in with the teachings that you're bringing up from the from Islam is not necessarily an easy thing to do. 
No, it's not. And, and by the way, there's another aspect of the Sharia which we have to talk about, and this is now really forbidden territory. Okay. One of the things that Muhammad did was to marry his cousin, his first cousin, okay? Okay, right. Now then, this means that marrying your cousin is Sunnah. This means that inbreeding is Sharia compliant. Inbreeding is a hmm. sin against all humanity. There are portions... And uh, one of the reasons for marrying within the family is you don't divide the family treasure up. So there are areas of Pakistan in which the IQ of an, an entire village may average 70. So the practice of inbreeding, which is Sharia compliant, is a disastrous thing. As a matter of fact, it could be one of the absolute worst things. We live in Nashville, Tennessee, I, at least I do. And uh -huh. in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a great deal of money given by the Saudis to Vanderbilt University to deal with genetic disease. The Saudis have a distinct interest in this because they have a lot of genetic diseases. And by the way, mm -hmm. there's one bitterness to this. Is it turns out, on the, the last of the Jewish tribes that Muhammad executed and enslaved the women, uh, mm -hmm. he executed the males and enslaved the women, and so these, these women who were Jews became incorporated into the Arab world genetically. Well, it turned out they had a rare... Uh, genetic disease, which is now found not only in Jews, but in Saudis as well. So there's a bit of bitterness, a bit of bitter blowback because of enslaving the Jews. But anyway, inbreeding is a disaster. It's a crime against humanity in the future. Well, I noticed that that's also common in royalty of, of quite a few different um, nationalities, right? Because they didn't want to... Well. No, they, they, they're they afraid of diluting the royal blood, so to speak. Now, you know, um, as, a, as a former redneck hillbilly country boy, the whole concept of royalty will always start me as like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> you're better than me, you're better than me yeah. because of the vagina you fell out of. Get, you're kidding, right? Show me you're better. Yeah. I, uh, unfortunately, I think they're not kidding in most of the royal families. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not but, kidding either when I say that. Show yourself. Yeah. Don't tell, tell me you're better. And another important area under Sharia that I think, you know, also has to do with the, the educational system teaching that the uh, Muslim culture is the highest form of, of, um, of culture in history is this idea that I've often heard that uh, under Sharia, you can't engage in the immoral act of charging interest on loans. Right? It's called usury, I think. Right, 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 right. There, let me say here something about this. When Muhammad in the Quran issued the laws against usury, we have to understand that at that time in, in Arabia, the current, the going interest rate was 100% a year. So that we would call mm. usurious. But here's the right. deal. If you look at, let's say that you take a, a Sharia loan out on uh, buying a house and you're not going to pay any interest, it turns out that you don't, well, you wind up paying the borrow, the loan agent more money than he gave you. It's just that you don't call it interest. They charge it at other fees. So it, okay. they just do tricks. As a matter of fact, it turns out that Sharia compliant mortgages, you pay more money out to the lending agency than you do under interest. But they jump through, they do some leasing and some sellbacks. I don't fully understand it because they're all just, it's a dodge. But okay. the dodge is, is that Muslims wind up paying more for loans than if they paid interest. 
Otherwise, there wouldn't be any motivation for too many lenders to be in that business, right? Richard, if I'm going to loan you money, there's a chance I'm not going to get it back. Let's be honest, and we've never met. But I'm saying that just because you get run over by a truck. I mean, whatever. Sure. Right. So I have to have something for my money because when I loan you my money, I'm not able to use my money, and you might lose my money. So there's risk. uh, Yeah. So I have no objection to interest. I've paid interest and did so gladly. But I'd rather pay interest that's lower than non-interest fees, which are higher than the interest I would have paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it does sound so okay, virtuous, sir. doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, we, we, we don't charge that evil interest. Instead, we charge evil other fees. Right. Okay. Okay. So there's still enough motivation to make sure that people are in the lending business. Oh, no, no, no. no. There's, there, there's enormous amount of money that's loaned in Islam. It's just they don't have to pay any interest. They pay other user fees, which are equivalent to interest and cost more. But they're proud right. of the fact that okay. it's not evil. Right. Why is interest evil, by the way? Now I can see gouging it. That, that, that's an aside. Let's move on to the next okay. one. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that in non-Muslim conversations as well, that uh, charging interest is bad. But um, I guess it's because the idea is that everybody should just give things to each other to be nice. And I, no. I think that that is all often used by tyrants saying that we'll make sure everything is nice and nobody has these evil intents by having total control of everything. And this is used in the ideology of communism and other things yes. like that. Yes. It makes for a gray world, it does, when everybody yeah. has the same outcome. One of the things I have in my career that most people do not have is I lived in a commune for three years. I raised a family in a commune. And in a commune, this was a hippie spiritual commune, and one of the things you learn is is that if you try to treat everybody totally equally, you'll discover that some stop working very hard. Since they're going to get paid the same no matter what, they simply don't work hard. They don't do enough work. So I've experienced the hippie commune, everyone's exactly equal and we're going to have equal outcomes. Uh, and it doesn't work well. for the, the, Those who work hard wind up supporting those who don't work hard. Just a personal observation from a personal experience. Yeah, the motivation. The other thing besides the lack of motivation is that if you're going to redistribute wealth in various forms to make things uh, totally nice and equal and, and uh utopian, then you need a dictator to enforce the freedom. Uh, I love that phrase. You need a dictator to enforce the freedom. Can I steal that? Uh, sure. Um, and I, I, I was also, also wondering about, um, it seems to me I read in one of your books that there are rules under Sharia for, for dictating when invasion is justified. Is that, did I get that right? Hmm. It's inv- if it's kafir, that's all you need. I'm not aware of anything more than that. Okay. So, so all you need to justify invading another country by whatever means works. Oh, actually, no, no, you know, you know what? Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm I'm speaking glibly here. As long as they permit the Sharia, you can't invade them. But it's when they okay. deny you can have the Sharia that you can invade them. Ah, okay. you're quite right. Okay. That must be it. So and, as long as you, when, if you do everything they want you to do, then why should they invade? They're going to get it all anyway. No, okay. as long as you're compliant, 
then they're, they're, they're good with that. Okay. All right. So I, I guess, you know, the problems come from the fact that there's no flexibility. You either agree, uh, according to Sharia and according to the basic tenets that were given to, Mu- to um, Muhammad to explain to the world, there's only one way really to do everything unless you're, you know, not obeying what you're supposed to do. Well, that's my interpretation of what I read in the scriptures. There's 91 verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to imitate Muhammad in every way. He's the perfect human being. Now, okay. so therefore, if you, if you believe that, now by the way, there are some Muslims today who are call themselves Quran only because they look and see who Muhammad was and they're like, ooh. Well, so we'll, we, 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 what they do is they claim some of the uh, Hadith and the Sirah uh, are simply not accurate. But then you wind up with a problem that you can't interpret the Quran. Muslims are not only enjoined to follow and obey Muhammad's pattern, but they're stuck with it as well. There's nothing they can really do about it. So Muhammad okay. is both the strength and weakness of Islam. I'm, I'm not really following exactly what you mean by that. Maybe explain a little bit more. Well, the strength of Muhammad is, is you know all the answers, and, and the strength of Muhammad is, look how well it's worked up to now. I mean, look. Islam is ascendant. Islam is, grows every day in its strength in America. Islam grows every day as a religious power. Islam grows every day as a political power. So when I say that Muhammad is a strength, that's what I'm referring to. Islam is working incredibly well. We find ourselves okay. sucker punched and not knowing quite what to do. But at the same time, he's the great weakness. I teach Christians, if you want to convert a Muslim, don't preach Jesus. Instead, first teach him who Muhammad really was. Because Muhammad is not the kind of man everybody wants to follow. Okay, it's just if you question it, then you're on very dangerous ground as a Muslim, I would think. Well, there is that, isn't there? I don't know who you talk to once you start that doubting process. Um, Yeah, I would think that you start looking over your shoulder in all directions. Actually, what happens is, is that from personal experience is they simply shut up and go on their way and try to not ever bring up the subject and try to stay away from it as possible. That is, they passively fold, but they still live right. within the community. I noticed that okay. Annie Cyrus mentioned that inside the homes of most Muslims, Islam is not found. That is, is they, she talking about, is she means in America or in, in general? She meant in, in Persia in particular. But the same is true in America. Most Muslims, if they start falling away from the faith, just quietly drift away in terms of just being silent about it. They don't fast. They don't pray. They don't go to the mosque. Okay. Okay. And and they're kind of left alone as long as they don't talk about it publicly, I guess, right? Yes. As long as you publicly are fine. Islam is not is a matter of what's seen superficially on the outside primarily. As long as you publicly are a Muslim and you don't question or doubt or cause any dissension, fitna, F-I-T-N-A, fitna as they cause, they say, then they just leave you alone. They just leave you alone. Okay, fit, fitna is dissension? Fitna is confusion, chaos. And it's, it's okay. something that is despised within Islam. Okay. Because remember, and, and when this all was put together, Muhammad was running everything, and fitna meant you weren't paying attention to him. So that was the that was the worst crime, fitna, creating confusion right, right. and chaos. Okay. 
Okay, so you know, with with all that in mind, um, you try to look ahead for for what's likely to happen in America. It doesn't doesn't really look very uh, harmonious based on all of what you've been saying. Well, as a when I was I mentioned to you, I used to live in a commune. I was a very idealistic person. Okay, when I was young, and I don't regret yeah. that. But now then, I'm not as idealistic as I was, and you can see that in that. I'll tell you, if you want to know the future, just look at yesterday. Very little creativity happens, in, and if it does, it happens over a long period of time. I'm talking about in social spheres. So in general, tomorrow is going to be just like yesterday, and that means that Islam will keep on becoming more and more ascendant, more and more powerful. I mean, they've now harnessed the entire refugee process to serve Islam. 99.5% of all so-called refugees that enter America from the Middle East are all Muslim. They're never, ever, well, I can't say never, ever. They're rarely ever Christian. So they have harnessed the entire process of migration to work for them, and it works really extremely well. So what will happen? We're going to have, now, of course, now there will be bumps in the road. If Trump's elected, then a lot of this may change. But if Hillary's elected, Nothing will change about immigration at all. It will all stay just the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, so extrapolating that out, what do, you, what do you think the results of that would be? I see the results being finally to the point where there's so much change that's tolerated on a gradual basis that there'll be some sort of snapback. That is, there comes a point at which violent things start to happen simply because people no longer trust in, Look, the law is supposed to keep us all from harming each other. It's supposed to right. us, uh, the primary purpose of the legal system is to protect the citizen. And once you no longer protect the citizen, citizens start protecting themselves. And that's called mm-hmm. vigilante justice. And that's where if it, there's two ways it'll go. Either we become entirely Islamic, all right, and the black flag will fly over the White House. This is after, say, a century or two. Or there will be mm-hmm. a a revolution of thought and mind and and as to which direction it will go have no idea and I'm just speaking right. in, in general abstractly here right well if you really believe that tomorrow is like yesterday then you look at the expansion of the Islamic empire and those countries have just simply become Islamic right that's generally yes. what happens well for instance the Ottomans uh, the Neo-Ottomans the Turks are back in the Balkans they're throwing their weight around, uh, and it is Islamic State has said very clearly that Spain is ours. You see, there is a rule in the Sharia that once Islam owns in territory, it's theirs forever. You may throw them out, but it's still theirs, and so they're going to come back for it. This is an example of how the Islam thinks in terms of generations and millennia and centuries. As we say, Kafirs keep time with the clock, Muslims keep time with the calendar. And it gives them enormous strength because they're playing the long game and we're playing the short game. Well, right. in the end, the long game wins. Okay, so so could you say that uh, looking at things not just with, you know, the months on a calendar, but the years and the decades and centuries on a calendar, if you look at the expansion of the empire of Islam that happened prior to the Crusades, would the Crusades be just a temporary pullback before the next forward movement? 
Well, the Crusades were temporary because the Crusaders didn't really know what they were doing. And besides that, some of the times they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing in the first place. But they didn't have okay. a coherent battle plan. So, but the business of predicting the future, I don't want to spend a lot of time on because I just I do not know. I'm just speaking in general. Is that history sure. generally is what yesterday was. And that there finally builds up a point to which people are like, I'm tired of the crap. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. And there's some kind of revolution. I use revolution mm-hmm. in the broadest sense of the term. So mm-hmm. we'll either all the, it's real clear. We either will have a revolution in the way that we think about civilization or we will become Islamic. There's, there, there's not a third choice in which there is no time in history, and this is the big lie of Islamic history, in which Islam lives harmoniously with other religions. Islam lives harmoniously with other religions when they are in the driver's seat. But until then, they're always contentious. They're supposed to be. Okay. Sharia demands it. Okay, so if you look at places um, with respect to what you just said, such as Syria, where it's not, you know, it's seen more as a, uh, actually as a tolerant type society where Christians and Jews and, and Muslims are living uh, in tolerance of each other, if not harmony. What's really going on there? Is that just a, a slower expansion of Islam or or? What's the accurate way to see it? Well, there's something which I call the law of Islamic saturation, which is once Islam has a toehold, in enough time, the society becomes completely Islamic. And I say this because it is a historical, I won't say law in the sense of physics, but it is simply a historical result. That once Islam gets a toehold, after a while, it becomes entirely Islamic. So what we have is Lebanon, for instance. Let's take a, one of which I know more about the figures. Lebanon, after yeah. the Second World War, was a Christian nation. Did you know that? Majority Christian. Today, uh, no. Lebanon, so it went from being a majority Christian nation to a majority Muslim nation because, listen carefully, the Christians felt sorry for the Palestinian Muslim refugees and took them into their homes, the home of Lebanon. What happened? Okay. Well, after they got enough strength, after they got up to about 50%, it was constant war. Until Lebanon went from being the most beautiful place, it was called, it was called the Paris of the Middle East or something like that. Well, now then it's just mm-hmm. another Islamic hellhole. So that's the way it works. Islam okay. may be tolerant for a period of time, but there always comes a point in which it, it, it takes over. Just look at history. Iraq used to be Christian. Okay, Persia used to be half right. Christian, but where right. is that now? It's not there anymore. So when I say these things, if they sound extremist, I say, go look at the history book. Egypt used right. to be Christian. Now it's 90% Muslim, and the day will come in which it will be 100% Muslim. Why? Because the cops want out of there. By the way, mm-hmm. people need to know this. Egypt used to be not an Arab nation, but a Coptic nation. The pharaohs were not Arabs. I sort of lean forward and talk louder when I say that because it is astounding how little we know about the history of Islam. Well, most people don't know what you mean when you say Coptic. Well, Coptic is the name that Egyptians call themselves. That's it. That was their okay. own word for themselves. C-O-P-T, the Copts. Uh-huh. And there's a Coptic okay. Christian church, a Coptic Orthodox church. And, uh, and I've, I've known many Coptic peoples, by the way. And uh, they're all sweet, gentle, and wonderful people. Okay. They're also all persecuted. Wow. Yeah, another huge area to learn. 
What if if you look back at the chapters we've covered so far, talking about Muhammad initially, and then the history since Muhammad, and the Sharia. What are other areas that are really important for an overall understanding of, of Islam that's more complete? What have we not done yet? Oh, well, we've, we've we've just touched on the uh, abuse of women. We've touched on the we've just touched on the history. Uh, okay. We've sort of given. Actually, this has been a uh, my method of teaching, Richard, which we've sort of done in this these series of interviews is to cover yeah. everything at a superficial level first. That is, what okay. I want in a math teaching method is instead of boring down into the Quran and spending a long time studying the Quran, is you study everything, Quran, Syria, Hadith, Sharia, at a superficial level. So now you have right. a big picture. Once you have the big picture, when you then go back to what's and start studying Quran, let's say you want to study hell in the Quran, you now have mm-hmm. a broad picture, so drilling down and getting this deeper picture becomes very easy because you have context. The other reason right. I like to do like we've done it is that if you cover it superficially, you then repeat the, la- the learning process later. I have discovered that Islam <clears throat> is so different from our civilization that what happens the first time you cover it, people don't really get it. It's just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the fact that there are two right answers which contradict each other. Whoa, wait a minute. That's wrong. No, that's Islamic right. And so you don't get it all the first time. And so what happens right. is people have to be exposed to it again and again. And finally, sometime around the third time, they go, oh, now I see what you're talking about. So this whole right. interview series we've done here, we've not tried to go deep because I think that's a mistake. I think we've done... I think this is the best teaching method on a subject that is simply bizarre, the average Western mind. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, then maybe, you know, if you're open to it, uh, the next chapter, if we get back together, could be taking one of those areas and starting to get into a bit more detail since we have the context. Does that make sense? It could. If we, I'll tell you one we ought to do. We haven't, we've barely touched on is slavery. Oh, is yeah, you're slavery? right. And so, absolutely. Uh, and, and that, by the way, is once again, my mind reels when I see the amount of ignorance that we have. There's always a big, the the bit, one of the hidden deep layers of of unsolved problems in America is the question of slavery. The roots yeah. of slavery are never studied. I went for I taught for eight years at a black university, and the history of slavery starts with the slave on the wooden ship. There's no discussion of how they were in the slave pens to begin with. That is the Islamic right. roots of slavery. So there's all kinds of things that have, have not been done. And uh, But anyway, I, that to me is is one of those that needs to be know more about. It is astounding yeah. how little we know about Islam. Um, I think slavery would be a really interesting issue for anybody, and uh, we should definitely do that next time if that's all right with you. Okie doke. Yeah. Let's plan on it. So thanks for being with us, and um, we'll work on digesting what you've given us today. Thanks so much, Richard. I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm really glad you did the interview with Annie Cyrus. What a remarkable woman. Yeah. I hope she comes back, and, and just so that people know, I mean, what she didn't just escape from a bad situation that she was in personally. She's now using all her time to rescue people who are in life-threatening situations. People like and her quite are a heroes and saints. Yeah, exactly. And everybody has the capacity to become that, in my opinion. That's the reason I don't like superheroes. 
I can't fly through well, the they, air. Yeah, not that we remember, but we we do have abilities that are probably just as amazing that we've just assumed we can't get back, and I don't think that's true. Okay, but what I'm saying no. is is that real heroes are ordinary people, and by the way, right. real heroes are people who do things while they're scared. Yeah, exactly, and and it, and it's not true that real heroes don't get afraid of anything. Oh no 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 no! It's, I, it's uh. You, a hero is someone who does the right thing in spite of the fact they're afraid. So, yeah, you go anyway, right toward it. Annie, Annie Cyrus, in my opinion, is a hero. A true Absolutely. Hero. Not, not somebody to, to worship at a distance, but to emulate. I absolutely and completely 100% agree. She is in, she's inspirational. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She can do it, why not me? Uh, yeah, it, it reminds us of what any of us can do if we decide we want to. I agree. Thanks for what you're doing, Richard. Yeah. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. All right, Dr. Warner, thank you. See ya. All right, so that was Dr. Warner, Dr. Bill Warner, uh, expert on Islam, who's made an incredible contribution to understanding of this major world religion called Islam. And the way that he made his main contribution in my mind is that he took these imposing massive scriptures, three of them that are the trilogy, that all go together and each one is necessary to understand Islam. Uh, they are the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Sirah being about Muhammad's life, the Hadith being about his traditions or the details of how he lived, his practices, and the Quran being more of an overview historical document, as I understand it. The Quran is usually the only one that, that, we, under, that we know about in non-Muslim Western society, and I had read it once before this latest uh, series of world events with Islam actually got started with the mass migrations, but I realized when that started that I didn't really understand what I read. And later on from Dr. Warner, I understood why I, I missed the point of it. And that is that one of the early caliphs, as our previous lesson detailed, had gone through, well, had assembled the Quran in, in written form because it was in scraps of, you know, writings in different places and oral tradition. And he not only had it all together, but then took apart the chapters so that they were no longer in chronological order and arrange them longest to shortest. So you really can't follow it, what's actually happening and correlate it to the life of Muhammad, which is critically important because the earlier part of his life in Mecca was very different from the part of his life that took over in Medina, uh, and that's where the mass violence came in. And that, those were the teachings that uh, became dominant. So... Uh, I also wanted to clarify the whole issue of uh, ISIS and the Islamic terrorists. And, you know, are they crazy um, extremists? Or uh, what, what, what is the difference between that and the apparently peaceful Islam that's practiced in the West primarily? Or at least it was until recently. Now that's changing. And I found out that that always changes. That historically has been the pattern. But anybody who says that, that this kind of analysis is racist is um, either being intentionally deceptive or they don't understand what racism is. The racism is 
used to silence dissenting uh, inquiries these days in the West. Western media and Western government loves to do this, but Islam is not a race. Anybody can become a Muslim, as we clarified in the discussion we just finished. You can live in Greenland and become a Muslim. I mean, you certainly do not have to be even in the Middle East at all. And so, being for or against Islam, the teachings of Islam, isn't, has nothing to do with racism at all. But the other thing to understand about racism is that thinking somebody is bad because of their race is definitely racism. But thinking they're good because of their race is all just as racist as, <laughs> as thinking they're bad. It's crazy. I mean, for example, when, when uh, Obama was running for president and saying all these things that turned out to be complete lies in order to get into office, all these things he would do and not do that were all false, so many people in America thought he was good because his skin was darker. But that is true racism. Thinking somebody is bad or good because of their race is just... The reason it's ridiculous is because it's, it's subject to, to complete error. As Martin Luther King pointed out, people need to be judged by the quality of their character, not the color of their skin, but not any other national or racial characteristics at all. It's who they are. And almost everybody has a past where they've made incredible mistakes. And what matters is realizing those and correcting ourselves and then, you know, starting to live as, as up to our real potential as human beings. And pretty much all the human beings uh, in current thinking came originally from the southern part of Africa. And then, and this was a long time ago, maybe a couple hundred thousand years, and then they migrated all over the world. And the ancestors, all of our ancestors settled in different parts of the world, in different climates, in different, you know, ge geographical conditions. And sunlight, since it's an absolute essential ingredient for human health, your body's very intelligent. And if, you're, if you settle in a place nearer the poles where there's not enough sunlight, your skin gets lighter to try to let more of the sunlight in. And so, there you are. You get a, a, a lighter-skinned group of people, or if you want, a race. But really, the lighter-skinned ones and the darker-skinned ones that needed more pigment in their skin to filter out the excessive sun near the tropical areas, they're all coming from the same source. So the whole idea of racism is completely ridiculous. Everybody has value as an individual, no matter what kind of skin color they've got or where they came from, what their ancestors did or didn't do. And they're in the process of learning their spiritual lessons, all of us. So for me, I like freedom because it lets us learn those lessons, not just for me, but for everybody. And the original idea of the U.S., it, it wasn't... Uh, certainly had a lot of imperfection and the people who were involved in it had a lot of lessons they hadn't learned because they came, they had invaded a country where the native people were mostly slaughtered and enslaved. The usual pattern in human history, right? But the idea of freedom was good. It just needs to be applied to everybody, not just groups that are conquering, but everybody. And the freedom is only contingent on respecting that everyone else gets the same freedom too. So you can think and speak and act any way that you want, live your life the way that you want to. 
you just have to respect everybody else's ability to do the same thing. And so government is there to make sure that, you know, we don't get overrun by our neighbors or by private criminal gangs or by other countries. That's why they have to watch the borders because the cultures are different. And that when you take down borders, you lose your country. But other than those few functions, the government is supposed to leave you alone. And in the U.S. that's been lost, and I hope we can get it back. Um, but the idea is that under that freedom, since you have some wise people in any society, those become real teachers and they get us back to an awareness of ourselves. Remember in the, in the Declaration of Independence, there's a lot of important phrases in there, but one of them is we hold these truths to be self-evident. It didn't say, we found these truths in a certain journal, so they must be right. That would just be a joke. We hold these truths to be self-evident because if you become a conscious human being, there are certain things that you know. Getting back in touch with that automatically makes us respect each other. You don't condemn other people. You don't condemn other groups. You want everyone to have freedom and a totally satisfying and fulfilled life. And you keep government and any kind of control to an absolute bare minimum. So anyway, that's what this is about, breaking free of programming. Whatever your country or your religion or your racial group or anything is telling you, if it's giving you orders to kill or to be destructive or to hate people or to just, you know, attack or, or hate anybody, it's just crazy. I mean, everybody, we're all in one family. Um, the reason that we're able to be controlled and misused by a tiny cartel of globalist rulers right now is because we're being dumb enough to fight each other. And fighting defensively is reasonable. But invasions, no. And uh, making other, other groups of people subservient so that you can enslave and kill them, no, that's not okay. We need to become aware of who we really are. So anyway, I appreciate your being here for these lessons. We'll have another one shortly and an another incredible show next week on an another topic. I think Clifford Carnicom's going to be with us, but go to our site, lostartsradio.com, sign up for the free newsletter. You'll have advance warning of each show and know whether it's one that you really want to, you know, make special arrangements to hear or hear on an archive if you're not uh, on a convenient day that time for the schedule. Uh, you'll also find the subscribers tab there, video subscribers tab, as my idea of a way we can stay in touch personally. And it's $5 a month that go for a little tiny bit of help to keep our work going. If we got hundreds of thousands of people to do that, we could build the school, which is our eventual you know, idea that I'd like to do as soon as possible if the funds show up. And then remember the Saturday call-in show. Uh, you're personally invited to call in, discuss any of these ideas about health or life or consciousness that come up on the show. Support us if you can. There's a donate button on the radio site. If you've got plenty of money, we'd really appreciate that because most of this work is all completely unpaid and we're just doing it to try to maybe improve chances for a better future for the world. Think about what's self-evident. Work on it during the week. And uh, remember, every situation is an exact opportunity to learn what you personally need to learn right now and break through the programming become yourself. It's pretty exciting when you start trying it out. And I'll see you next time.
If you'd like to support Lost Arts Radio, one brand new way that you can do that is by becoming a monthly subscriber.